Boys and girls, ladies, gentlemen, lads and lassies, and those that don't subscribe to Agenda, welcome to the GOT Guy Questions Podcast with Spencer and Lee. Spencer, say hey to the people. Hey, everybody. Oh, they say hey back. Spencer, how are you this week? You know, I'm doing really quite well, you know? Uh, we've got a chance to watch another Game of Thrones episode again. We've gotten to hang out. We're getting to talk about stuff. You know, it's all I can really hope for. I'm doing good, too. I'm doing good. The weather is good here in sunny North Carolina. Oh, we're not going to have any sudden storms that destroy your internet like that, like the last few times? I make no guarantees, but we're going to do our best. A uh, little housekeeping while we get going. So we're now up on iTunes. We're up on iTunes, Spencer. How did that happen? A lot of work by me, actually. And then SoundCloud and also Stitcher. You know, there are times I feel like I'm not contributing enough to this project. He's just, you know, I step away for a minute and you've got us exposed to half the internet. Yeah, well, you know, I am kind of the brains of this operation, but occasionally you come in and assist. Uh, in that vein, I'd actually like to do a shout-out. Spencer, you were busy this week. What do you mean, sir? I've got no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> Mangum Talks officially launched our second podcast this week, Mangum Reads, which, by the way, folks, Spencer drove the train. Well, you know, we had to have a certain degree of continuity. <laughs> Yeah, it would just be like, these are random people just talking about things. Yeah, no, it was good. I, I listened to it. It's basically, um, Spencer, do you want to give an explanation about what the podcast is? I mean, essentially, all of us being certain varying degrees of nerds love to read, but the fact that we live on completely opposite sides of the country, I mean, you're up in North Carolina, I'm in what you've colloquially dubbed a foreign country of South Florida, uh, it makes it hard for us to get together to actually talk about these things. So the opportunity that many people feel at various moments in their life to have a book club to actually talk about and discuss the various themes and aspects and plot of a book that you've just read and enjoyed is a rare perk. And we're going to find a way now through this program to share it with the audience of where not only will we talk about a book, but we will tell you about the book that we're going to read a week in advance or a couple weeks in advance so that you can read it along with us and post your comments, your questions, your interests, anything that you want us to discuss and talk about, or even recommendations of the next book that we can read so that you, our beloved listener, can participate in the book club along with us. Now, it is my understanding that there are short stories occasionally? It will be a mix. I mean, we all live pretty busy professional lives, and so the idea of reading a thousand-page book in a week is a bit of a pipe dream. Um, so, or in a year. Theory going. We'll be focusing on short stories and novellas, something that you can just easily read for pure pleasure reading during the evenings, whatever else after work. Right, and maybe well, perhaps as episodes go on, we'll like propose a book to read like three or four weeks in advance so that everybody's got time to read it and get to it while we read various short stories in the meantime. Okay. Well, if you listen to this podcast primarily for my witty banter uh, and professional insight and um actually real broadcasting skills uh you're probably not going to get me on this podcast very often <laughs> i read the you know, song of ice and fire books and i was like i'm done you know i recommended duncan egg and you were down that's true i did blow through duncan egg but there were pictures but anyway I'll, I'll try to join you guys occasionally i like that you're doing it i listened to the first one and i listened to it without reading the book and i still thought it was good so don't feel like you can't listen to it if you haven't read the book although i you know obviously it will be better if you have that's kind of the point. But it is the, the way the guys do it. It's very listenable, even if if you haven't read the book. So check it out. Mangum Reads. It's going to be up on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher by Sunday of this week, which will be April 26th. By April 26th, they will be up. That is my promise to you, the listener. It is revealing of my level of technological understanding that whenever these videos are posted, it is purely based on how fast Lee can edit it, because I'm playing no role in that at all. 
Yeah, no. I mean, if this ever goes big, I should get like three quarters of the money, right, Spencer? Wait, we're making money? No, not I, yet. No, not at all. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, you had my hopes up for a second there, man. Come on. All right. Well, let's get into the uh, into the episode this week. This week, we're, re- we're reviewing Season 7, Episode 5 of HBO's Game of Thrones, titled Eastwatch. Before we get into the opening credits, Spencer, anything you want to say about Eastwatch? I'm just going to lay this out beforehand, and you and I have talked about this off screen. We're going to have to address this at a certain point. We are in the back half of the season, and this is neither of ours favorite half of the season. No. This this episode in particular highlighted two plot points that I cannot even begrudgingly accept or get involved in or commit to, which makes it hard for me to be as fond of these last three episodes. So at times I will seem more surly than I necessarily intend. It's partly because I love the show and I really love the first half of the season and I'm a little bit disappointed about where they went. Don't let that detract from how you feel about the show, how much you like the show. And I will try to keep it to a minimum because there is still a lot to celebrate here as much as I personally don't like a few ways they went with the plot. Yeah, I'm the same way. I'm not quite as harsh as Spencer, but I, I really think they, they kind of, there was some serious, serious missteps in these last few episodes. So, you know, if you listen to the first uh, four episodes uh, where we reviewed this season, we were we were pretty uh, happy with it. We were pretty positive. We're not quite going to have the same tone, but we're still going to review it. We're still going to have fun. I'm still going to try to make you laugh. Spencer's going to try to make you think. So let's get into it. <laughs> the title of the episode is Eastwatch. Eastwatch is a reference to East Watch by the Sea, mm-hmm. which is one of the castles um, along the wall that were once manned by the Night's Watch. Spencer, pop quiz, how many castles are there along the wall? I believe there are 10. There are 19 castles along the wall, so already a point for me. I'm getting on the uh, <laughs> on the board early. All right. Are there actually Are there actually yeah. 19? I would have lost are, money on that. Yeah, there are 19. Yeah, I should have bet you. Now, how many are manned? At uh, present, only three. Well, ha, 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 quit. That's, that's, that's a tricky question. At the start the of the series it, or the where show. we are now? In the show. In the show, they've only discussed three being banned. Right. What are those three? Uh, well, there is the uh, uh, not, there's the, uh, the Castle Black. There is yes, Eastwatch Castle by the Black. Sea. And then there is, um, oh, it has West in the name. I'm suddenly blanking on the name. But what is the, what is the name of the third one? If anybody questions if we have prep for this show, this segment just proved it. <laughs> <laughs> you told me nothing. I did not know there'd be trivia. It's the Shadow Tower, homie. Uh, that, now this you. one, I, this one, I think you'll get. Um, you know, talking about these castles that are along the wall. Uh, Yano Slent, uh, the former uh, Lord Commander of the City Watch, was executed by John, Lord Commander John Snow, after he refused to take command of which castle that is now in disrepair. Was was it the Night Fort or was it a different one? Grey Guard, three for three. Why do you do this to me, sir? It's Friday. I've had a long week, and you're throwing <laughs> trivia with no prior notice. Yeah, that's not fair. I totally just Googled that right before. But I think it's important yeah. to know, you know, this is just one of the 19 castles along the wall. Um, over the years, you know, the realm has, you know, thought that the threat beyond the wall was more mis- mythical, wasn't real. And so they stopped sending a significant number of people to the Night's Watch. And so now only three are manned. Uh, but East Watch by the Sea is one of them. Though it's worth worth noting that particularly for East Watch by the Sea, it is one of the better manned and maintained of the various because it is indeed one of the ocean ports they have. The majority of the Night's Watch's uh, fleet actually bases there, and probably one of the more experienced commanders, a Greyjoy bastard, actually commands actually commands it. So, in terms of 
scale of investment, I'd say this one is either just behind Castle Black or maybe even at the same level. Yeah, and it's also one, like that that one I would feel like would be important to always man because that's the way you get around the wall without climbing it or knocking through it, right? You just sail around it. Well, I mean, they both, I mean, they work to various degrees. I mean, the Shadow Tower has, if you look at Westeros, it's kind of got this large gulf that separates the the land of the wildlings from the north proper, which in, in that gulf is where the um, Mormont's Bear Island is located. So the Shadow Tower maintains a large fleet itself just because wildlings very typically will just get on boats and sail across. It's part of the reason that the Mormonts are so damn experienced in handling wildlings is because they've been dealing with raids for time immemorial, particularly now that the watch is substantially decayed from the uh, 10,000 plus strong force it used to be in the past. Right. Okay, so that's the title. Uh, it gives you a little background about where the show is going. We start with the opening credits. Spencer, again, the spirits of the Baratheon brothers still hold down King's Landing. Kind of amazing, huh? You know, it's the kind of legacy you really should be proud of. That Even though literally they are all dead to a man, the family survives with bastards who are not at all. Even though not a single member of the Baratheon family, other than a bastard who comes up in this episode, reside in King's Landing, it is in some ways heartwarming to see that their sigils persist, that their legacy, their pride endures overall. We are the storm indeed. I want to like have a panel at a con where I say, you know, the point of this panel is the presenter, Lee, is going to tell the audience, uh, you know, how Stannis remained king even after he died. And everybody would come and be like, what is this? And then I just show them the opening sequence of every episode of season seven. <laughs> and to which I would immediately stand up and point out, uh, sir, sir, Stannis never conquered King's Landing. It's very clear in my mind that that, 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 that uh, stag is representing Robert Baratheon's legacy. Yeah, I'll give you that. I still love King Bobby B. Shout out season one. All right. Uh, only thing I want to point out uh, with the opening credits this week is that the they added the Eastwatch sequence. And I, man, I got to tell you, when they add these sequences later in the series, like, their budget's clearly gone up because maybe I'm just a geek about this stuff, but I thought it's just gorgeous. It was amazing with the with the um, you know the the jagged stairs that go down the side of the wall. I thought it was just a great sequence. As much as we like to harp on the fact that they've not adjusted the uh, sigils there over King's Landing, the level of craft they put into the Citadel, into the East Watch, into each new place they invent is still lovely. I love the clockwork effect they put into each of them. Yeah, me too. All right, well, we start the episode, and we are at... <laughs> Here we go, Spencer. You ready? <laughs> Jamie? <laughs> I know, man. It's going to be tough. All right, let's try to get through it. Jamie and Braun wash up downriver. Uh, from the Greywater uh, Rush, from uh, what uh, Got Questions podcast is now referring to heretofore as the Field of Fire 2.0. Mm-hmm. And, you know, let's not spend too long on this, but this is clearly ridiculous. Jamie is still in full armor. They're not that far away from the battle. It doesn't look like anybody's looking for him. They seem to, th- to pretend that the guys had never come up for air the entire time. Yeah, that was his and that first Braun, breath, clearly. And that Braun was able to drag him underwater, full armor, swimming all the way down. Not a good look, show. Not a good look. Jamie's wearing like 60 pounds of armor. It's full plate. We have, They're so far away, we can't even see exactly where the battle occurred. It, it makes This is such a plot contrivance. It doesn't make any sense at all. And again, the fact that Jamie apparently... Like, I mean, at the last point we saw him last episode, how deep would you say he was underwater? Like 30 feet? Yeah, and Bran, Bran went down there, got him, 
swam all the way down river like at, it had to be like a 50 mile per hour pace he's got like a like a, a souped up pontoon boat that he's he's riding <laughs> underwater and he brings him it it's bad anyway we've we've covered it it's bad but that's what the show did and they come up on um up on the shore and well actually let me back up spencer i got a, qu- a question for you and this is not trivia so don't get scared mm-hmm. um is this the most take you out of the scene moment that the show has ever done because they've had a couple pretty bad ones <sighs> No, I wouldn't go that far. At this point, and it's kind of sad to even say this, that I almost expected them to do something this easy. Ooh, that, snap. That I figured that they would not have, that this late in the game, with this much commitment put into the characters, that they weren't going to write Jamie out. They weren't just going to have him drown unceremoniously off camera. And so with Bronn clearly tackling him off the horse, and with Bronn being basically their go-to guy to accomplish any major event of plot that Littlefinger isn't doing, um... I figured he would probably pull this off. And so it was with just a certain bit of just almost depressive acceptance that I looked and went, okay, yeah, saw that coming. Wow. So I, some I'm serious I'm, shades. Serious I'm, shades. I'm, I'm too beaten down at this point to invest that much into it. Yeah. All right. I guess for me, um, and, you know, the, the listeners are probably already tired of this, but, I, you know, the, the give me 20 gun bin and I'll go burn up Stannis' camp. Like, yeah, like bad. he didn't have scouts. <laughs> like, come on, man. That like, they, prob- they, yeah. That, that was one of the earliest moments. I mean, there have been moments in even season two where there were, you know, weird plot points that didn't make sense or didn't like. That was one of the first moments where I just really went, okay, you've just decided that you're going to make Ramsey capable of comic book villain levels of competence just randomly and, and i love yeah. how the book readers who know you know what stannis is as a character and that that would never happen just counterpunched with memes like <laughs> we, the book readers were just like okay you're doing that i got two memes in the holster i'm firing off on our a song of ice and fire today <laughs> it, it was just non-stop but stannis the most experienced one probably most experienced battle commanders in all of westeros didn't apparently believe in the need for guards or outriders scouts apparently well, to be fair apparently no one on the show really does yeah that's true all right well then you know braun basically is talking to to jamie and it, jamie's like seems to be a little shell-shocked and he, he says this you could have killed me which I, I don't even understand what that means because there was dragon fire coming at him when Braun took him off his horse. Uh, and Braun, you know, I'm going to go ahead and put this. I know we don't like this scene, but I'm, I'm going to nominate it. Line of the okay. episode. Listen to me, cunt. Till I get what I want, a dragon doesn't get to kill you. You don't get to kill you. Only I get to kill you. It was a good line. And again, whatever else we want to say about how unfortunate it is the two of them arrived in that beach there together, the actual dialogue and interchange between them is quite good. Yeah, and it go- It continues. Uh, because <laughs> Bron says, You're, well, basically, Jamie's shell-shocked, and he says, you know, that was only one of them. She's got two more, which is a very human, like, that's exactly what I would be thinking in that situation. And Bron, yeah. Bron sets the record straight. He goes, you're fucked. <laughs> he says, don't you mean we're fucked? No, I do not. Dragons are where I pop the ship ends. Yeah, it's one of the things you can't blame <laughs> Bron for. It's very much in keeping with his character, that this is the new equivalent of the mountain, that this is something he is not willing to climb or confront, Good luck. God bless. He's out. Yeah. I don't blame him there. And then Jamie says, you know, obviously he needs to go to Cersei, um, which Bronn indicates is probably going to go over lovely. Spencer, anything else you want to say about this scene? 
No, again, it's a scene that I liked. I love the uh, just look of just abject horror in Jamie's eyes. He's just fully, finally coming to the full realization of what a threat Danny is and how boned they truly are. And Bronn, weathered mercenary than he is, is just very casual about it. Is this, yes, you're screwed. And, you know, honestly, you're probably even more screwed that you have to go tell Cersei what happened. Yeah. So good luck, you cunt. All right, mm-hmm. well, then we go back to the side of the Field of Fire 2.0, and Tyrion is walking through the wreckage, and it is, it's clear to him that the Lannisters got good and thoroughly dumped on here. This is a no-regard-for-human-life situation. And it's, you know, I make jokes about it, but it is actually pretty heartbreaking because there are people reduced to, like, a skeleton and ash. I mean, it, 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 the Dragon Fire, it's been established, show and books, super, super hot, incinerates people very quickly. Um, and it was just tough for Tyrion to see his father's forces destroyed so basically easily. Yeah, I mean, we, we've seen before the true horrors of war on the show, but we've never really seen the after effects of it. We've always seen during the battle, during the carnage. We saw when Tyrion used wildfire to blow apart Stannis' fleet. We saw when Jon was caught in the melee as various cavalry were charging about him. In terms of the actual after effects, most of it's been very much off screen. This is Tyrion straight wandering through the firebombing of Tokyo or the aftermath of Hiroshima or Nagasaki in terms of just level of surreal carnage that he's stumbled across. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, and then the Lannister army is brought to Danny. Uh, there's not much of them left. Uh, I, I counted maybe about 40. And she's with Danny and Drogon, who is on a hill. Spencer, when you looked at the scene of Danny with Drogon on the hill, what did you think? Um, first thought that occurred to me is that, dear Christ, save some of your budget for later. The quality of the shots that they've done of Drogon in pretty much every single shot have just gotten more and more incredible. Particularly one that's going to come later when Drogon says hi to John. Also, in some ways, it kind of reminds me. Spoiler alert. On, yeah. Also, kind of reminded me as if she was sitting on her own version of the Iron Throne. I agree. The- it was gorgeous. And the thing that went through my mind uh, on rewatch is this seems like, like, you know, if the, if humanity survives and the, if the king, uh, the Night's King is defeated, this is something the mummers and the, the singers, right, are going to talk about uh, forever. This will be, this will be painted. This will be the beginnings of her rule were found in Westeros upon this particular scene. All right. And so what I want to do now is I want to figure out when the singers sing songs about this moment. What's the title going to be? And not to be all Spencer about it, but if it's the show, I would probably, they'd probably call it that time Janie and Drogon were on a hill, right? It'd be a little on the nose. But let's, let's do, let's do the version. More poetic, more poetic. Let's do the version that, that, that GRM, Gurm would write. Um, What do you think the mummers would call this? Uh, The Queen's Choice. Ah, I've got the trial at Dragon's Hill. Mm -hmm. Uh, Got any more? Uh, a test of fire. Oh God, Spencer! Woo! Coming back from a three-zero deficit. You're on the board. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I have the hill of the dragon's justice, which isn't as good. Or, or if you want to keep in terms of what Danny's theme's going for, the breaking of the wheel. Yeah, these you 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 dunked on me there. I'm gonna give you three-two. I'm still up, but you're coming back. Now I'm gonna throw something at you, Spencer. This is weird. I, I know I'm going off track here, but. I look at the Lannister forces, I look at their position, I look that they don't have Casterly Rock. They seem to have about 40 soldiers left. Uh, Cersei, who has no power, is sitting on the throne only because Danny refuses to go in there and kill her. Mm-hmm. So, you know the, sa- the song Reigns of Castamere? Uh, yes, quite familiar. Remix! I'm remixing the Reigns of Castamere. You ready for it? 
I no, I'm not. This is entirely unexpected. Go on. Well, I tried singing in the first episode, and you you just did not appreciate it. So I'm going to try it again. I'm doing. I'm. I'm. This is what I'm doing. All right. Please, I invite in, you. Go on. In light of current events, at where the Lannister family stands right now, mm-hmm. I'm rewriting the Reigns of Castamere. Okay, and I'm I'm going to dispute your premise the moment you finish the song, but just don't keep that thought in the back of your mind. Well, listen to the lyrics. Mm-hmm. And who are you, the proud Lord said, that I should bow so low? Mm-hmm. Only a queen from a distant land, that's all the truth I know. In our coat of gold and coats of red, we lions have no claws. Mine were long and sharp, your grace, but not as sharp as yours. And so she spoke, and so she spoke, the queen that has returned. And now the cats weep o'er their halls with no one there to hear. Yes, now the cats weep o'er their halls and not a soul to hear. Thank you, everybody. Well, Thank you, everybody. Well done. Appreciate well it. Done. Thanks, thanks for clapping, Spencer. This is totally yeah, Spencer who's clapping. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I don't know why that got in my head, but I thought, man, the I reigns will. of Castamere would ring a little hollow after you hear about this battle. And then I got in this weird rabbit hole, and I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to rewrite it. You know, and I just want to make sure all, all our listeners are very aware of this. I watched the episode and take some notes. This man here writes friggin' songs in preparation for your entertainment. Keep Keep track of that. Yeah, I take this very seriously. But anyway, yeah, I think but the Reigns of Castamere would ring hollow. Uh, she's definitely I, declawed the lion. I, I will fully accept that the lion has taken one hell of a punch to the jaw. At least one paw has been fully removed to claws. I will note that probably a substantial share of the Lannister forces got away, given that we know the gold made it to King's Landing, and given that Jamie just didn't rather flippantly say to Cersei, the entire army died in one of the next scenes. They're yeah, actually... I was going to point that out. I was actually, we, we have a different opinion on that, but I will get to it at that scene. Okay, we'll get there. But yes, le- Cersei, full, Cersei has taken a level of destruction to her forces that she practically could not survive if her opponents weren't playing with one or even both hands tied behind their back. Yeah. So then Danny addresses the remnants of the Lannister army. She seems a little bit conflicted on if she's actually there to murder people. Uh, it was a, kind of a weird one-two sentence <laughs> where she drops in, you know, I, it's Cersei Lannister who, who's here to murder you and, and, and kill you and take your land. Anyway, bend the knee or I'm going to burn you. Like, what the hell, Danny? This is very classic Danny of where she has a collection of followers who have come to her for varying different reasons, many of which worship her as... I, a mother to uh, is bordering between a mother and a godly figure. She's very rarely worked well with convincing enemies to come to her side. This is the only practical threat that she's ever had to like the various nobles and marines. She just essentially said, "Either work with me, or I'm going to you know nail you to a cross out front like I like I did to a few hundred of your peers." She's never practically had to bring an enemy to her cause, and this scene really shows what she and Robert Baratheon fundamentally do not have in common because robert was the golden god the shows talk about books talk about robert was the golden god of convincing enemies to support him or at the very least not stand in his way danny has none of that training and this scene labels out that 
her idea of convincing former enemies to bend the knee is essentially a Hobson's choice that, hey, join me or nothing. And that nothing is death. Yeah, I would. In my notes, I said that she seemed a little conflicted on if she was actually there to murder people, but that actually gets cleared up pretty quickly because Randall Tarley uh, does, not, does not kneel. Now, let's talk about this. Mad respect to Randall Tarley here. You Mad respect. To. You have to. This man. is a man who's. St- this is a lifetime of honor, of loyalty, of determination, of just utter courage and fearlessness being forced to confront its its end. And he stares it straight down and marches to his fate. It's... When when they sing songs about this, I'll be curious to see whether they sing more about Danny or whether they sing more about Randall and his son. Uh, they'll sing about Randall, but I don't know about Rickon. No, Dickon. Uh, anyway, he refuses to kneel, uh, which touching moment from the actor who plays Randall Tarley. He looks really just crushed because he knows what his son's doing his son is him he's his blood and he's doing the same thing his dad does but man it breaks his heart it, that was that was really tough to see uh so then randall and then rick on no dick on uh burned to death uh now yeah. the important i want to hear your thoughts on this spencer both from a character perspective on the interactions that happen on the lead up to the burning and then on danny's decision to do so in the first place because Tyrion here does all he can to stop Danny, and he's he's Tyrion is like the king of talking on his feet, right? Of just like, well, shit, I got to come up with something, coming up with something, and he he does. He comes up with a few things. He's like, hey, look, maybe we could put him in a dark cell for a few days. Maybe that'll change your mind. And she's nope, not having it. And then I thought, brilliant. He's like, well, send him to the wall. Like, yeah, see, soldier, like send him to the wall. And Danny looks like she was considering that. She considers yeah. it. And Randall Tarley, boss man that he is, alpha of the episode alert says, you can't send me to the wall. You're not my queen. Oh, my mm-hmm. gosh. One more slap in the face before he dies. Anyway, uh, Danny uh, has Drogon burn them. And, and my God, they burn in like three seconds. I wouldn't, I'm not even scared of burning that way. Like, it doesn't feel like you even feel anything. The first second would probably suck. The latter two, by that point, you probably can't breathe, feel anything anymore because you've lost all nerve ending. But, you know, the first second, something to fear. You know what, Spencer? <laughs> you got me there. That was a stupid thing I said. Burning alive would hurt for a little while. Yeah, you're right about that. All right. A little while being relative. Of, tell me what I mean, you think I, of the, the scene. I mean, it, it's interesting to see as well where Danny opens, of where she's trying to convince the troops to come to her side and that, you know, Cersei's trying to send you to war. I'm not here to burn your houses. I'm not here to kill you. I'm here to break the wheel. And this is a speech Danny has said many times before. She told it to Tyrion before about she's going to be the one that not only stops the wheel, she's going to break it. That the uh, this was from back in the Hard Home episode, like what season four, of where she said uh, Lannister, Targaryen, Baratheon, Stark, Tyrell—they're all just spokes in a wheel. This one's on top, then this one on top, and so on it spins, crushing those to the ground. So she very much sees herself as a revolutionary who's going to bring freedom to those who've never even had a concept of it. In many ways, Randall Tarley and his son represent those that she inevitably has to crush for this wheel to be broken. They are of the lordly classes. They are the ones that she deems practically the oppressors. And so in some ways, their execution here is almost poetically in keeping with her trying to phoenix-like burn down the old world to have a new one be reborn. Um, As you say, Tyrion gives her every... That's what I'm here for. Tyrion gives her every possible way out of this, but Danny, who throughout the books and show, I don't know if she's ever said in the show, but the books just chants to herself, if I look back, I am lost, 
has assumed the queenly mask, and from her perspective, it would be weak, it would not only be weak for her to back down, but she responds to Tyrion's point of when he suggests let's put him in prison to say that if I give him that option, everybody will take it. That for me, I, I don't have the time, I don't have the patience, I don't have the resources, I don't have the long-term ability to ponder it out to enable people to have a long chance to make a decision or enable people to sit idle. I either need them dead, I either need them on my side or out of my way. And so she makes a decision that is, well, you know, remember your Machiavelli. Is it better? Is it easier to be loved or feared? Danny's clearly going with the feared edge of that equation right now, and it works. The entire remnants of the Rand, of the Atarly uh, Lannister army bends the knee before her, but you better believe this isn't the Stark kind of loyalty that we otherwise admire. Yeah, I mean, her Mad Queen bars here leveled up to like fifty percent. I mean, that was a very Mad Queen sort of thing to do uh, I didn't like the move from her I thought that you know the whole idea behind her not just burning down the red keep is to yeah. create you know some level of love or loyalty or at least begrudging respect from the people of Westeros and here you are just burning this guy alive so didn't like it I was with Tyrion on this one I don't think it's something that's going to destroy Danny or anything I think she's still in a pretty strong position but I would have probably done things differently and I would have counseled her like Tyrion did to let him sit in a cell for a little while it's one of those things we've seen frequently with Danny before. If she does not practically know how to deal with someone who disagrees with her, she does not practically know how to deal with somebody who is opposed to her. That, from her perspective, the only world that you can live in is the one I pick for you. That everything else is an option that is in opposition to me. Yeah, and that's from one of the that's one of the only things that I like about her and John's interaction is John teaches her through these early episodes how to respect somebody who disagrees with you and edit on a point that's very fundamental to Danny's existence. And she's learning, and we'll get to that uh, later. Anything else you want to talk about uh, with this well, scene? Well, just one thing practically is that Danny's action in terms of killing these two lords is another action that she's doing that just puts a salvo in the side of the medieval world that Westeros is in. That in Westeros' perspective, this is very much true in the books and even in the show, is that lords are sacrosanct. You don't kill lords. You knock them out, you take them prisoner, you ransom them to other people, but they are above the common soldier in terms of the possible threat that they face in warfare. It's one of the things that ended her, the rule of her, of her father, the Mad King, was that he was killing lords. You kill the common people, whatever, they don't factor in. You kill the nobility, you've committed a crime that no one can forgive, that no one can tolerate, that will unite everyone against you. For Danny to burn two lords right now in front of their troops, in front of their followers, in front of their various men's at arm, Men-at-arms is just such a heretical action in, the medieval, in, the, in this kind of medieval world that I don't know whether she fully accepts or recognizes how beyond the pale it is to commit the crime that she just did. Spencer, I agree with you. It, it's a, it was a tough move from Danny. Uh, I didn't like it. Uh, I like how you broke it down. Thanks for being a little poetic there. A little shout out to season four. What, her decision's not entirely unreasonable. I just, is like you, I think it's short-sighted. I feel like she's feels backed against a wall and feels the need to make quick, decisive action rather than what actually will give her a long-term base of power. Okay, and then we cut to King's Landing and Jamie is uh, West Wing power walking through the Red Keep. Uh, he seems, sees Kyburn, who is a a reddit level lurker here he is just like in the corner uh and he walks into cersei's chambers cersei's sitting in the bed she does not look pleased she asks how many men do we lose and he says we haven't done the counting now spencer you just referenced this line i took this line to to be kind of 
dumb. I was like, how many? Everybody. But you seem to think that most of the men I don't got think the most, game? but I think that they're not entirely devoid of troops. Otherwise, who would have actually transported the gold in the King's Landing? Okay. All right. Well, I, I don't think we know. We don't. And um, I, th- I mean, some, some level of men have to have gotten through, but my thought is that when Cersei immediately said we need cell swords and uh, cell swords, and Jamie didn't say, well, we still got half our army. Like he didn't. He was like, well, I guess maybe, but right. it doesn't matter. Pr- practically, they've lost the bulk of their forces, and they're in a horrendous position, which she's trying to make her conscious of, but she's not willing to fully accept it. Right. Jamie still seems to be pretty shell shocked here. He um, he suggests that Danny burned a thousand wagons, which <laughs> nice round number there. <laughs> He's like. I thought you hadn't done the county. He's lied to a certain degree of poetic license, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I guess so. And then Cersei brings up hiring sellswords. And uh, Jamie dismisses that by saying, well, no one can beat the Dothraki. It doesn't matter if you're, you can get all the, the golden company you want. You're not going to beat them. And that totally jives with what I saw on that battlefield. I mean, it didn't look like anybody was going to beat them. It, I mean, that's what uh, Robert Baratheon told us back in the day, that only a fool would confront the Dothraki in the open field. That even if you're able to potentially survive, you'll be so thoroughly mauled and they'll have done so much horrendous devastation to the uh, actual kingdom you live in that what's the point of victory? King Bobby mm-hmm. B, shout out. Number two of the episode. And then Cersei is very on brand in her defiance. So we fight or die, or we submit and die. I know my choice. A soldier should know It's his. a good line. Do you think that's very fair? What, 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 what do you mean? Well, I just wonder if it's it's a fair um, comeback to Jamie saying we're in a lot of trouble here. She's basically like, well, there's nothing to do. We just should fight. And like, I mean, I think what Jamie's trying to do is tell her to think in a way that later on in the episode she starts to. Yep. Right? Which I mean, is... From her perspective, what, though... What, as Brian said... I mean, from her perspective, think about who right. she's dealing with on the other side. She's got Danny, a person who is burning lords in an open field, who is dedicated to the concept of overthrowing them, and who is probably not going to be inclined to take them prisoner. With her chief advisor being Tyrion, a person who, from her perspective, killed her father and her son. She doesn't assuming that surrender will give them any amount of mercy here. She only believes that halfway through the scene, though, because Jamie does, in fact, tell Cersei, tell her it was me. And he says, no, Tyrion didn't kill Joffrey. And Cersei just seems so put off at the conversation until Jaime drops a little bit of logic on her. He's like, hey, look, if your granddaughter was going to be married to Joffrey, wouldn't you have preferred Tommen? Who else? Which one of those would have allowed, you know, for Marjorie to sink her claws into and to influence? Which one would effectively make you the ruler of the Seven Kingdoms? Very good point here. Uh, and I think Cersei I think she's full, I think she does, and I think she's fully rattled by it. She looks like she truly had never considered that possibility. And it's fully convinced her of uh, Olena's deception and treachery. Yeah, that's one of Cersei's weaknesses, her hatred for Tyrion, because she didn't think about any other possibility. Um, okay, anything else you want to talk about? No, I mean, scene? I think it gets the point across. I think it sets out that Cersei at this point feels very set in her ways and again references the mercenaries that we're probably inevitably going to see fighting on her side next season yeah okay i agree um okay and then you have uh danny uh you're back on dragonstone and danny flies in on drogon i love this scene and drogon i do too but here's the thing when i was looking at thought like because i'm a big like our game of thrones our song of ice and fire uh, Redditor, I like I like Game of Thrones Twitter. I, I follow all this stuff, and there was so many references to Drogon being like Danny's ghost, like he was being kind of a dog here. 
I don't think so. I think he's being more like a cat. Have you ever seen, like, when cats are interested in you, they just run up to you and get right in your face. There is no pretense. Yeah, at all. There's nothing you're going to do. They're on your lap. They're looking at your nose, and they're sniffing you. And, by the way, there it's, it's, a, it's to my mind, a magical reason which one they like and which one they don't, which that's the same concept here with Drogon. <laughs> so I submit to you, Spencer, Drogon, more of a cat than a dog. What say I you, I think sir? that's a very reasonable interpretation. It also gives me an interesting perspective on your relationship with your two cats. Do you When you first got them, did you assume that they were running up to you to make a choice about whether to uh, just consume you alive or fall in love with you forever? Uh, I think in their mind they were. Yeah. <laughs> if I had the mass, you yeah, would be I a snack. So. <laughs> right. Uh, but anyway, uh, he's poking up in John's face, super curious. And Alpha John alert! Alpha John alert! Oh my God, I'm so impressed with Jon Snow here. I would have shit myself. I'd have jumped off the side of that cliff. What does John do? He takes his glove off and he starts petting the dragon. I mean, the guts with yeah, this and guy. It's an interesting scene because it very much shows that Drogon is feeling something about John. Is feeling either a certain connection or is detecting something about him. But with John fearlessly pulling off his glove and putting something against Drogon, I think it's implied that he feels a certain degree of connection and kinship too. Could be. Could be. Or it could be the John Deathwish theory, <laughs> which I've pushed in previous episodes, and I will push again. Before the end I, of the season. I don't buy it with this one. He seems too... I mean, it could also just be kid getting to meet the Triceratops for the first time. Of where it's every imagining, it's every story he's ever read. Here in front of him, seemingly almost bowing before him and curiously sniffing at him. You know, if I was confronted with a T-Rex that had actively decided not to eat me, I too might be really intrigued to, 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 to pet the T-Rex. So you're saying that because of what he read as a child and what he sort of dreamed about uh, when he was younger, it caused him to do something and, and yeah, like put himself in a pretty stupid situation. Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah. The childhood, nostal yeah. childhood nostalgia yeah. and fascination propels yeah. a lot of people to their early deaths. Yeah, so I'm going to draw a parallel here because I want to sign up for Space Force, Spencer. We don't get in politics. We don't get in politics, but I'm just telling you, there's a Space Force. I'm joining the Space and Force. I, I, you know, I hate to be the first person to tell you this, Lee, but you're old. You're too old to join the military anymore, my friend. That's true. I do have bad news. Uh, anyway, when John is touching Drogon's face, I mean, this has been covered on other podcasts. Uh, we need to touch on it here. We can do it very briefly. The CGI is incredible. It's of the best they've ever done. I think it's movie quality, if not better than a lot of major motion pictures I've seen. And I, I give the show all the credit in the world for how that scene looked. I mean, I would give them all the credit in the world just for Drogon's eyes. The molten fire that is smoldering in that dragon's eyes with every glance it has. The secondary eyelid like a shark that whips across them. It's gorgeous. It's beautiful. I'm amazed by the level of commitment they've made to the CGI in the show. You look back at the little dragons back in season one and they look like props compared to this. Totally agree. Uh, I, I thought it was just amazing. Uh, but also interesting in this scene is Danny seems astonished. It really, I think, blows her back. Because I don't think we've ever seen any of her dragons, once they've reached about teenage years, you know, respond positively, positively to any other human except yeah, for her. It le re really leaves interesting questions of what she was intending to do with this. I almost feel like she was purposely trying to intimidate John, and then they just went in a completely different direction than she had expected. When she's looking on at this, she's legitimately baffled, and also very, very intrigued. See, I didn't take it that way. Here's how I took the scene. I thought that she was trying to land far away from John. 
But Drogon, the cat, just took off on her. And she was like, whoa, what are you doing? And I think she probably had a moment where she was like, oh, shit, he's going to kill John. That's going to be a problem for me. And then when they were like, they bonded, I think it, it really it really confused her. And she's never seen any of her dragons, but especially Drogon, act that way with Enid. No, I agree with that. I think that if she wanted to have stopped Drogon, though, she could have. And we didn't see her like trying to pull on his reins much when she was charging in. Yeah, yeah, fair point. All right. Well, anyway, uh, Danny gets down. Yep. Um, and yeah, no, I'll, I'll finish it off with the scene with because I think there's an interesting perspective on Danny as a mother with, with this scene. Okay. Uh, well, anyway, uh, Danny gets off of Drogon, and Drogon just kind of gives her a look like, "Okay, you're good. You can hang with this guy." And he takes off, and they start talking. And Danny tells John she made pretty short work of the Lannisters, which John was able to piece together because he was like, "Well, you weren't gone long." <laughs> And she's like, no, I guess you don't like that, do you? And, and John looks uncomfortable. And I would like to raise the possibility here that he's not just uncomfortable because of the ethical implications of what she had just done, basically using nukes, Westerosi nukes on mm-hmm. an entire army. I also think he might be a little uncomfortable because it was just a few episodes back that she told John that she considered him an open rebellion. Yeah. <laughs> he had to be like, oh, God. Oh, and I'm still an open yeah. rebellion. <laughs> this, this, from his perspective, this could be a trial run of what she intends to do to the North unless he bends the knee tomorrow. Yeah, and, and I think that in earlier episodes, she probably would have gone that route. But here, again, she's developing a warmness for John. I want to get into it a little later, but we, we do need to have a discussion about that relationship. Um, she, Danny, as she's talking to John, does bring up the knife to the heart comment uh, that Davos made when they first uh, she was first introduced to John. And if you didn't listen to that episode, I posited that Danny took a hold of that because she knows that she's magical. She knows that there's something about her that's special. And in any other ruler that she's gonna see as even remotely close on her level, or even, you know, potential friend, lover, whatever, she's looking for that same magic. And she wants to know, what what did that mean? And, and John really doesn't wanna talk about it. He's never wanted to talk about it since it happened. I think he feels a lot of guilt uh, that he's here and so many people aren't. And she had bluntly asked him, okay, well, then that was just a figure of speech, right? And he gets saved by the Jorah because in comes the dulcet tones of Sir Jorah Mormont. And I'd like to point out in this scene that I love how the Dothraki walk. I know it sounds weird, but I'm I'm a guy who likes Mm -hmm. professional wrestling. And and the guy who was leading Jorah to Danny was walking 10 for 10 like Stone Cold Steve Austin. It was just a... And he's just like strutting. I love the, I love the confidence. He had a magnificent rolling strut. He was utterly confident in his scene and his ability to kill everybody in the room. Loved it. Uh, so George shows up and of course he gets down on a knee and, and Danny's just so happy to see him. Touching moment because I do think that she does love Jorah on some level, not the same level Jorah loves her, but he does, she does love him. And, you know, she says, You found the cure, and, and he confirms that he has. And Danny takes Jorah back into her service. It's an interesting scene because this is one of two scenes of when uh, either John, uh, Jorah interrupts a scene between Danny and John, or John interrupts a scene between Jorah and Danny, where they're really seeming to play up. I wouldn't necessarily say a triangle, but a degree of conflict between their relationships. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know about a try. Maybe like, what's the tri- <laughs> man? This shows how good I was in geometry. What's the triangle where there's like two, like there's like one really weak sort of. Angle? Oh, the isosceles you know triangle. That that probably is it. That sounds right. It, it's like yeah, it's a little bit of a triangle, but it's like 
not so much. It's maybe like the Phil Jackson triangle that the Chicago Bulls ran, where it was like there was Michael Jordan and there was Scottie Pippen, and then like the third person was like Steve Kerr. Like, Jorah Mormont, you were the Steve Kerr. One thing this whole scene kind of reminded me of is, you know, we're in our mid-30s. There's a lot of, you know, uh, single moms out there. This reminded me of a scene of like a single mom bringing her uh, new boyfriend home to meet the kids for the first time. Uh, and just being really, really, really happy that the kids like him. I'm like, oh my god, he's cute, he's a nice guy, he's got an entire kingdom or three at his back, and my kids like him? Sploosh. Yeah, I like that, Spencer. A little comedy. Spencer's throwing in some comedy. Okay, anything else with this? No, uh, again, scene? I just... More dragons, please. They're lovely. You've done wonderful things with them, show. Okay, we cut back to Winterfell, where we're at the Weirwoods. And Bran is on a sort of Westerosi network hacking mission. He's got um, a, a bunch of ravens, I think, he's deploying. Uh, he seems to be searching for the Night's King. And uh, he they go off, and now, Spencer, I want your take on this. When I watched it, I thought that he's not able to control every one of the ravens at the same time. He's flipping back and forth between the different ravens. And the reason I think that is because it shows the eyes, and the eyes are fluttering with that white... Uh, you know that you get when he is he's warging into them and it's kind of going between the different ravens Did you have the same that was, read of that, that was the implication? I thought I'd draw from it, too Yeah, that we've never seen brand. I don't think we've ever seen brand control more than one thing at a time So I think this is practically the best that he can do is just quickly jump between Okay, and then you know he does see the Night's King army. It looks like they're marching near Eastwatch and the Night King looks at the raven that Bran is in at that moment, and his internet gets disconnected. He just, he's done. And he breaks out of it. Uh, and he then tells Maester Walken, ravens, we have to send ravens. Spencer, do you think he was able to break Bran's warging connection to that raven because he had previously touched him? I thought there were one of three possibilities here. I thought first possibility is that, yeah, they previously have a connection between the two of them, that he has touched Bran, he's confronted Bran, he has a knowledge of Bran and his abilities, and maybe even a feeling from when he's present in there. That's possibly number one. Possibly number two, both of them are drawing from Children of the Forest magic. And so maybe there's an ability between the two of them to recognize that kind of magic and confront or interfere with it. And possibly number three, this also could be the first hint that the show has that the kind of magic that the uh, Night's King is using is the magic of a warg. That um, similar to Bran's ability to warg into another creature, perhaps the Night's King is warging into the dead. The book makes a point of pointing out, I think a couple times, that a warg always recognizes another warg. So it could very well be our first hint to how the Night's King is commanding the army of the dead. Wow, yeah, good points. Um, okay, anything else you want to touch uh, on? No, I, mean, I think you got the point. I think you got the point across that uh, the Army of the Dead is a lot closer than we thought, almost unrealistically close, because we didn't see the crows like take a break or anything, and crows presumably can't, you know, fly at a hundred plus miles an hour consistently for days or whatever else. So this suggests that the uh, Army of the Dead is a pretty straight bird doesn't need to take a drink level shot away from Eastwatch. And that jives with what we see later. Um, so then we go to Old Town. And the maesters being led by Archmaester Ebros, my man. One of my favorite characters at this uh, of really? show. Really? Uh, is, is, oh, I love him. Are you kidding me? He's such an alpha dog. He, he, he's so dismissive of everybody and everything. I just, I think every scene he's in is hilarious. Including and he's one. not purely dismissive, though. As we see in this scene, he's willing to give credence to other theories. Just not enough to control his decision making. Mm. 
Yeah, but hold on. I got a few points about how he's alpha in this scene. I want to point out. So they're discussing the scroll that was sent by Mr. Wolken at the direction of Bran. And, you know, they're like a crippled boy who can see into the future. They're like, like, what the hell is this? And Sam jumps in and provides a credit reference for Bran. He's basically like, hey, man, I know this kid. I sent him north of the wall. He lived north of the wall for multiple years. He can't even walk. Like, it's a pretty badass thing to do. We should probably, you know, consider what he has to say. Um, and he, <laughs> you know, the Archmaester is then like, uh, okay, great, but do you have an actual proposal for me? Which, another boss move. Like, don't even, br- like, he's such a CEO. He's like, don't even bring me a problem without a solution. I don't even want to listen to that. Like, what's, what's your detailed mm-hmm. solution here? What's your, where's your PowerPoint, Sam? And, and Sam then says, well, look, you could write to all the houses in Westeros. They all trust you. And you could tell them to bring all their normies, uh, their armies uh, to the north. And they would do it. And what I thought was great about this is it seemed like Sam is really picking up on the Archmaester because he totally plays to his ego here, right? He's like, hey, look, you know, you're the one that can fix this. <laughs> if you just send out a letter, everyone mm-hmm, will listen mm-hmm. to you. Uh, which the Archmaester said, you know, it's possible. But then he floats the idea that the scroll is Danny's work. Sam's clearly upset. Uh, he pushes back, but the Archmaester's pretty firm here. Sam's, uh, Sam walks out, and then the Maesters, uh, as he's ma- walking out, the Maesters make fun of some characters uh, that we haven't heard of in the show. Ginny of Oldstone and the Prophet mm-hmm. Lodos. Spencer, book knowledge, take it uh, away. Ginny of Oldstone, I mean, these are two characters that are referenced in the books, pretty minor bit characters that both existed long before the actual period of the books. Ginny uh, of Oldstones was a lady of King's Landing, a lady of court, who famously brought a woods witch to court that she told the world was a child of the forest. Uh, said Woods Witch apparently died with um, much of the Targaryen family at the tragedy at Summerhall, which we'll probably t- we could dedicate our own show our own episode to that. But in terms of connecting it to characters that we know about in the books and show, it was the event by which most of the Targaryen family died, but also the event at which Rhaegar Targaryen was born. Uh, however, this Woods Witch uh, may well have survived into the course of the books as a character that we know in the books as the Ghost of High Heart. When Arya is slumming around with the Brotherhood Without Banners, they come across what is an ancient weirwood grove that's at the top of a hill, chopped down by when the uh, Andals invaded and launched their war, their war against the First Men of the Children of the Forest, but perhaps with a certain amount of magic left in it, including who could well very be the first child of the forest we ever meet in the series. A withered husk of a woman only about three feet tall, with pale skin and red eyes, who seems to have an utter and complete command for prophecy, that as she sleeps upon the hill in the now chopped down grove of weirwood trees, she has visions, she has dreams. Which, as we see here, the Archmaesters mock even the, even the old stories about it. Over the course of the, of the books, there's many references to this ghost of thy heart that are just considerably dismissed as just, oh, peasant, peasant talk and nothing else. But as Arya sees firsthand... This woman essentially predicts the entirety of the plot going f- in the middle of book two going forward, including potentially Arya's ultimate fate. And so she's one of the more profound prophets of the books and a very interesting image of how magic has continued to persist along the margins, even if the, art- even if the various Meisters in the Citadel refused to ex- accept it. Uh, by comparison, Lotus is an almost comic figure of where he was a priest of the Drowned God. Love you Lotus. Love Lo- i just like to tell the listeners, I love Lotus. He's the best. Uh, well, you can jump in here, too. You know Lotus. So there's no, no, no reason for me to, c- to control the no. full talk. 
no, you you keep you you roll with it, but I'll tell everybody okay. why I like him. Lodos was a priest of the Drowned God. That uh, when Aegon the Conqueror and his sister wives invaded Wester, back let's back up back up the Drowned, Drowned God? God is basically the patron saint and, uh, and god of the Ironborn of the people of the uh, um, of the uh, Iron Islands, the where the Greyjoys come that's from. That's the Greyjoys. It's yep. a god that's very much associated go. with gotcha. both uh, lack of investment in the soil and the. Uh, importance of all it almost has an, an era of a death cult it's very much almost like a viking religion of a religion that's very much built around focusing on the sea focusing on the underwater kingdoms by which the gods inhabit and focusing on what you can take from the world and how being close to death can in many ways make you immune to it um very prophecy is very much tied into this too about the priests of the drowned god drown themselves so that they can become closer to their uh, Lord beneath the waves, that they can be more closely tied to his magic, to his visions that they can derive from their near-death experience. Lodos was one of... Which we saw, which we saw in season six, right? Oh, uh, in terms of uh, Euron, Beca- Euron being drowned as part of his uh, yeah, becoming yeah. king? It's right, a yeah. ceremony that many um, individuals who are, view themselves as true ironborn grow through as a rite of passage when they grow up, but particularly... Those uh, drowned men, those uh, in service to the drowned god, will do this many times over their life as a mark of faith and fealty to their to their god. Um, at the time that Lodos was around, the Ironborn, uh, under a family before the Greyjoys, the Horror family, uh, were one of the most powerful of the Seven Kingdoms. They had r- ruled not only the Iron Isles, they ruled all the Riverlands and extending in other directions around too. Until Aegon the Conqueror showed up who proceeded to burn their great citadel at Harrenhal, that burned relic of a ruin of a castle that we saw back in, what was it, season two of the show? Season two or three? How, how long ago was that now? Yep. Uh, I believe that was season so two. So as he burned up their entire family uh, and now then moved to invade the Iron Isles, Lotus was one of the main points of resistance that kind of formed about, of where as Aegon the Conqueror's fleet was descending upon them, he had visions that he, the drowned god would call up the waves and destroy the fleet, which didn't happen. Uh, and so to become closer to his god and better access his visions, he and his followers decided to essentially just walk into the waves. Thousands of them. And all drowned and their bodies washed up for weeks afterwards. So it's kind of usually put forward by Meisters as an example of how prophecy, this mindless supernatural focus upon interpreting the world is not the proper course of proper way to go about your life. Though notably, Lotus himself and his body was never found, so perhaps he does sit behind uh, the throne of his god beneath the waves. Okay, so why do Please I like Lotus? tell Lotus? me, because I'm intrigued. Be- I'll tell you why. Because it's like, alright, you're at a bar, right? And you're with your friends, and another dude walks in, and he's huge and he's got like two other huge mm-hmm. guys with him and they come over and they start taking your shit they're like i'll take your drink i'll take your girl or is that a chicken wing i'll take it and we're all sitting there like guys we got to do something here's what lotus did lotus said look if everybody bum rushes those guys all at once we're gonna win so everybody ran into dudes and then lotus took out the back door like <laughs> that's how i view lotus he was like all right here's all we gotta do just go down in the waves and uh, the drowned god will come up and, and he'll win. Everybody went and he was like, okay, I'm out. So you're interpreting Lotus is not actually drowning himself. That Lotus essentially got all of his followers to drown themselves so that nobody could really fully recognize how much he'd fucked up. 
That's what I want to believe. Yes. God, <laughs> please don't be the lotus of our future story, man. Don't, 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 don't go down that path. I think our, our days at bars late at night are. Oh are God, over. we're old. But anyway, okay, go on. Um, yeah, well, uh, and talk about Jenny Volstone, Prophet Lotos, and as soon as Sam closed the door, um, they get serious again. And I like this scene because it does humanize the Maesters. I mean, we've spent the better part of the season, I've spent the better part of uh, the recap of this season laughing about how mean the, the Maesters can be, specifically the Archmaester. But one of the Maesters turns to Archmaester Ebros and asks if Sam is the person whose father and brother were just charred by Danny. Yep. And Ebros says he has, but he hadn't had the heart to tell him yet. And in probably the most expensive in terms of just like time and effort for any compliment anyone has gotten in this show. Think about how hard Sam has worked. He got a compliment. Archmaester Abros says Sam is a quote, good lad. It was honestly a rather touching moment. It was. I mean, it was it was truly heartfelt compliment of him. He really does admire him and does see his potential and doesn't want to crush him with this. And... Um, what was it? was it Amon was it Amon the uh, old archmeister the old meister of the uh, castle black that told us that everyone who takes the vows is tested at some point the archmeister sees very here that uh, sam's going to be tested very early on in his career as a maester of the uh, citadel mm. so sam winner of the episode sam winner of the episode just cuz he got a compliment <laughs> From Archmaester Abros, my friend. Yeah, it's a big I, deal. I will admit that many people have worked far, have worked, the amount of effort he's put into this, the amount of commitment necessary to get even that is truly impressive and worthy of praise. All right, so Sam, winner of the episode. All right, we've already called it. All right, back to Dragonstone. And we are in that big, gorgeous throne room, and Varys and Tyrion are chatting. Uh, Varys has a scroll, um, and he tells... Uh, Tyrion that it's uh, well there's this kind of cute back and forth where Tyrion's like what's in the scroll and Varys is basically like it's a it's a sealed scroll for the king of the north like being like oh, I wouldn't read it and Tyrion just takes a sip of wine and goes what's in it and Varys just says nothing good you know you know Varys has read it obviously Varys has read it um, but I would like to point out here I think it's very interesting that Varys calls John king in the north and what, whatever else you can say for him, you can't dispute that he has claimed the title and those that are, and, 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 and the entirety of the North and the Vale has accepted his kingship. It would be, basically be incorrect for them not to refer to them as king in the North. You can call him a usurper, you can call him illegitimate, but it certainly is an accepted title by like one third of the seven kingdoms. Yeah, but not one person on Dragonstone because Danny made a point of calling him my lord. Room. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> but I also think it, it shows, like, I, I think that there's starting to become a begrudging respect, not just from Danny, but of her posse of John and how he's handling himself in that yeah. situation. We, we make fun of John a lot. We say that he lacks, we say that he lacks cleverness, that he lacks long-term thinking, that he consistently has a gormless, brooding look on his face. But it's hard not to respect him. That he very much embodies the stark principles, the stark values, the stark dedication that has earned loyalty from the North for thousands of years. Yeah. Well, then Varys starts pushing Tyrion to get Danny's mad bar queens down, uh, or mad queen bars down. Uh, Varys is pretty outright in his comparison uh, with Danny and, and the Mad King, which I would think it's nothing he would ever do mm -hmm. in front of Danny. Uh, but Tyrion pushes back and says, Daenerys is not her father. And here we go, another potential line of the episode. Varys responds, and she never will be with the right mm -hmm. counsel. 
Darius then says, or Tyrion then is like, "Hey, look, I did what I could, but you know, ultimately it was her choice." And and Varys again draws the the parallel with the Mad King and says, "Well, that's what I thought too. Every time he burnt someone and I could smell their flesh burning." I wasn't doing it. Every time he, you know, did something horrible, I wasn't doing it. And he's trying to tell Tyrion, you have a level of responsibility here with your position. You have to make sure that she doesn't go off mm-hmm. the rails. It, it, it's a classic philosophical debate. It's the question of German guilt. But how much can you just divorce? How much can you just allow yourself to merely be a tool of corrupt and evil men? How much can you be content with that? That you're allowing someone else to make the moral decisions. I mean, um. It's a so-so movie, but the movie Kingdom of Heaven has a wonderful line of where one cannot go before the king, one cannot go before the gates of heaven and merely say it was not I that decided thus. Yeah, and you know, I have in my notes here to ask you, and, and just tell me yes or no. I think I know the answer here. Do you think Varys is sincere in his regret about his role in the Mad King's reign? <sighs> Book or show? Show. No. I don't think so. I think. Wow. Wow. I thought it was a, a hard I'm yes. Not sure. I mean, I'm not entirely sure, but I can't fully divorce Varys from the, sh- from the books with the show. I think in the show, it's much more possible that he's legitimately feeling a certain degree of regret. This isn't just a bit of pragmatic manipulation of where he's trying to get Tyrion, who he knows has the uh, queen's ear much more than he does, to persuade her to a more noble course of action. But... <sighs> I will say, show it's much more likely than not that he is truly expressing legitimate emotion, that this isn't a degree of uh, careful manipulation. It's just in the books, every, scene, like every, out... scene, every scene that Varys is in is emotional manipulation. Yeah, I would just like to point out how interesting it is and in how you watch the show. And I know a lot of people in the Song of Ice and Fire community watch it the same way, where what they see on the screen and what they hear, they don't believe. And then if you ask them a question about the character, they're like, it, oh, no, it, no. I'm like, well, I'm talking about the show. And you're like, yeah, but still, I remember the it's book. It's active anyway. denial, and I openly admit that. But I'll, 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 I'll rephrase uh, again. For the show, strictly the show, yes. I think he is very much having a moment of honesty and opening up to Tyrion to advise him do not go down the same path in life that I chose. Yeah. Okay. Well, then next we see John. He's in the map room. He's reading the scroll. Uh, by my count, he's with Danny, Varys, Tyrion, and Jorah. And he is reading the scroll. And the show gives us the uh, the ill-used or oft- <laughs> not often used up-the-nose shot of John. I don't know what that camera angle was meant to uh, give us. We're trying new things. Uh, trying new things. <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty pretty weird. Uh, but anyway, um, John announces that Arya and Bran are alive. Danny's a little confused as to why he's not excited about that. And John follows it up by saying the army of the dead is marching. John says he needs to go home and fight. He's got to leave. And Danny uh, basically says, "Well, you don't have enough men." And John's like, "Look, we'll fight with the men we have." And he invites Danny to fight with him. And she basically says, I can't give control of the lands uh, that she's taken uh, to Cersei. Now, I'm going to draw a parallel here. Uh, this reminded me, and a bit of a stretch here, but follow me. It's kind of reminded me of like, if you, you're you going to have like a college party, right, Spencer? Like, we're back at Mangum. We're going to have a party. Mm-hmm. Why would you invite and, me? Oh, sorry. Go on. <laughs> because much love, Spencer. That's why. Mm. And we're trying to get girls to come. And we're like, we've got some girls but like not a lot of girls. And we're like, all right, well, let's go talk to this one really good looking girl 
like, you know, at like a sorority. And you go to her and she's kind of like, I don't know, I got other stuff to do. And then finally it's Friday at six and she's like, you're leaving? I thought, I thought you wanted to hang out with me. He's like, look, we party with the girls we have, okay? <laughs> so then he goes back to Mangum and has the party. This seems like what he's doing. He's there, he's trying to recruit somebody to this thing. She thinks she's integral to it. And finally he's like, you know what? No, like, I, I guess I just got to go back and just fight with what we have. I got to party with the girls we have, Spencer. Lee, you know those times when you wax poetic about various NBA references that you discuss complexities of sports where I just kind of smile and nod? This conversation about inviting girls to parties started to cross really heavily into that territory. I, I, I know our listeners are surprised by that fact, but I was very content to just smile and nod for that last two minutes of you talking. Well, first off, it wasn't two minutes. But <laughs> I would like to say that that is, that is a funny moment, though, because like I immediately thought, like, man, remember when I was trying to get girls to parties? And, and I said that to you, and you're like, okay. All right, yeah, anyway. Yep, you, you do you. I understand. All right. But anyway, my diatribe aside, um, I would also like to point out, like, with what army is Cersei going to take these lands back? I mean, does Danny think that she's got, like, another army somewhere? And I guess this gets back to the argument, or not argument, but a sort of disagreement we have about how many Lannister soldiers there still are. But she saw how many she killed. Yeah. That was their main fighting force that went to take Highgarden. Why does she think that as soon as she leaves, Cersei's going to have like multiple armies to roll into Dragonstone and the Stormlands and all these other places? Well, you know, she's kind of gotten burned about for the last three episodes in terms of underestimating Cersei. <laughs> Maybe she's finally earned a degree of respect and caution for what Cersei is capable of if you give her way too much room to work in. That she, she may be rationally coming to terms with the fact that she does not know every bit of resource that Cersei has. She does not know fully what Cersei is capable of, and she cannot perfectly imagine what Cersei will imagine doing next if given the opportunity. So I'm actually okay with uh, Danny here that once you have your enemy on the back foot, you keep hitting them. You don't give them room and time to recover because you don't know what they can come back to you with. Yeah, I guess that's fair. I mean, I just feel like it's a little bit... It's She's making some assumptions about Cersei's power there with knowledge that I don't think that she has, right? If, uh, if, she's, anyway, gonna, um, if she's gonna assume, I much prefer her assuming in this direction than she has been previously. Yeah, fair enough. Maybe she's learned a lesson. So then, and we cut to, and this is where it all starts to fall apart, Spencer. Tyrion. Oh my gosh. Yeah, now, I, I don't mean to over. I don't mean to overstate this, Spencer. You know that I'm an even-handed man, um, and I don't. I shun hyperbole at all times. Yeah, indeed, of course, of course, of course. But Tyrion here concocts the dumbest plan of any plan in any show I've ever seen ever. We mentioned the two plot lines that the two of us are just going to fully rebel against over these next three episodes. This one is, just takes the cake. This one, I know that they had to imagine a way for everybody to come together. Couldn't they have imagined one at least somewhat more logically sound than this? Oh my god, it's awful. Well, anyway, all right, let me explain what the plan is. Please. So Tyrion basically says, well, you know, maybe, maybe we can get Cersei to work with us or at least not against us and they kind of look at him and go and he's like look you know cersei thinks the army of the dead isn't real she thinks she doesn't know that this is a real thing if maybe we could find some way to convince her uh if we could bring one of these dead things back and show her then maybe she would believe us and she would at least in the short term work with us and of course everybody goes well why would she give us an audience and he goes well she only listens to jamie and jamie listens to me sometimes so maybe if i could just talk to him 
I could convince him lot to convince. Lot of ifs in that conversation. Oh my God, it sucks so bad. If I could convince him to convince Cersei to have an audience with us and we can go, not we, but you guys can go north and get one of the dead things and bring it back, well then maybe we can all fight together against the dead. And oh. and very and no one questions him on this. Apparently, the show thinks this is such a wonderful idea that no one second guesses it. No one takes a moment and just says, "Tyrion, you drank a bit last night, didn't you?" In any, huh. I mean, the show's so content that this is a wonderful plan. It has everybody else chip in about how great they think it is and how much uh, various ways that they can improve it and make it work. In any I rational it- world, Varys just grabs Tyrion by the neck and throws him out of the room and says, sorry, brain fart, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll sleep it off. I thought it was terrible, but they all buy in. Um, and they make it worse. They make it worse. I mean, fine. May, the zombie thing may, is not necessarily the best plan in the world, but maybe, possibly. You have the equivalent of helicopters and planes. Fly over and grab one. You don't need to lead a ground mission to go take it. Yeah, makes no sense. But anyway, the Tyrion says everybody's like, "Well, how are you going to talk to uh, to Jamie? How are you going to get to King's Landing?" They all sort of look at uh, uh, Davos, and Davos says, "Well, look, I, I can get you into King's Landing. I can I can smuggle you in. But if we run into trouble, I'm not a fighter." Now, my question for you, Spencer: Why do they keep having Davos say that he can't fight? It comes up over and over again. You know. It- in some ways, I appreciate it just because it shows that a person could be badass on the show, could be worthy of legitimate respect without having to do it martially. That most of the characters that are still left on the show, the show heavily emphasizes that they're really good in combat. They're about to form together an A team of their best, quote unquote, their quote unquote best fighters for the purpose of taking over an entire episode of plot. It's kind of nice to have somebody who is the non combatant but is still very much valuable to their cause and is still prided for his skills. But I don't yeah. know why they feel the need to mention it like three, three or four times now. Yeah. Anyway, Jorah volunteers to go north. He says, "I'll go up and take one." All right, Jorah. Bon chance. But then John says he'd go with him, which everybody was like, "What?" And again, I, I, I don't mean to be a broken record here, but I think John has a death wish. I think he has survivor's guilt, and he's just looking for dangerous situations to put himself into, and a death that he think would be on, he thinks would be honorable. I mean, with how dumb this plan is, with how much they don't know a jack about what they're walking into, yeah, I suppose that's probably the only logical interpretation is that John has just found a heroic way to die beyond the wall. Yeah, and then Danny kind of tips her hand a little because she gets meek, which you don't see very often, especially these days, and she just kind of softly says, I haven't given you permission to leave, which John, alpha the episode alert, with respect, Your Grace, I don't need your permission. I am a king. I like that line. I don't like that he's using it to just go do something stupid, but I like the line. And one of the things I rebel against about this most is not that it's a dumb plan. People do dumb plans on the show, and that's fine. It happens. I object that nobody objects to it. I object that nobody points out the extensive logical problems and how very much it is a suicide mission. What I'm annoyed about is how quickly it comes together as a dumb plan, of where it comes across as just so obviously a plot point, as just so rotely that they've decided that this is the only way they can get from A to what they've previously planned is C. And to see the strings so obviously on this show just hurts. Yeah, so then we cut to Winterfell, and in this week's installment of the Northern Lords are disloyal pricks, 
They're complaining to Sansa that John needs to come back. A king and an ass should stay in an ass. And Sansa listens, um, but she ultimately takes John's back. She says, John's a king, and they should respect his decisions. Arya watches. Anything you want to say about this? What happened to the North remembers? What happened to the idea that the Northern Lords are the most loyal and passionately dedicated to the Starks of any uh, the Starks and their liege lords of any other kingdom? What happened to the end of the last season of where everyone in that room swore loyalty and begged forgiveness for their prior disloyalty? This show just treats the Northern Lords as being no different from any other lords in the South and anywhere else, and I hate it so much. I really do. Yeah, I do too. I, I you say you say what happened? I'll tell you what happened. It's the delay of Winds of Winter. That's what happened. <laughs> the delay of Winds of Winter, and the, the and the, this is the second plot point of pretty much everything that happens in cat in the cat in the when winter fell between Arya and Sansa, of where they are doing everything possible to create drama for the purpose of creating drama, and it's obvious, and I I think it sucks. <laughs> Yeah, I don't like it either. Uh, but then Arya follows Sansa to her room and notes, these are mother and father's chambers. Which yeah, I think yeah, yeah. Arya here is being a little ridiculous. Like, what are you, you going to make a museum out of a bedroom? Like, somebody's got to move in there. And do, do you want it to be somebody else? Yeah, it's, it's a castle, Arya. We can't really build a new wing that easily. Yeah, Arya insinuates that Sansa, somewhere in her mind, either wants Jon to die or to be uncrowned so that she can rule. And Sansa gives a look that doesn't... She's, her words say, no, that's ridiculous. How could you think such a horrible thing? But you look at her and she's, she's waffling a little bit. So I think there's like a kernel of truth there. Uh, Spencer, what do you think? I mean, I think there's possibly a kernel of truth, but I, again, just can't really get into the scene because I, like I felt like they wanted to create some drama between these two characters for the purpose of extending the plot, and I just don't buy it. It just feels really forced that Arya is being such a prick about this. Agreed. I, I don't like this this whole Sansa Arya uh, thing. I didn't believe it. I thought it was a waste of time. But we're covering it, Spencer, yeah. because we're professional broadcasters. We're professional broadcasters. And I had the slightest little tease of hope with it once it the show kind of represented that maybe Littlefinger was actually manipulating them for being dumb as it plays out in the next part of the scene. Yeah. Uh, I would like to point out that... Um, all four foot eight of Arya tries a little physical intimidation. She stands a little close. Like, <laughs> I know we know that she can fight, but like, come on, man. That's like, yeah. <laughs> Maisie Williams is so teeny. Like the idea that she just steps up to somebody and they're like, whoa, like that. That's yeah, a little, back, back off, man. Come on. Yeah. And then um, Arya leaves with a mocking lady, And we cut to King's Landing. What? Tyrion and Davos well, arrive in a wait, fairly wait, 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 wait. small skift. Don't don't we actually have? Uh... I'm trying to I'm trying to remember the scenes. Was this where Littlefinger actually plants the note, or is that later on? It's later on, Spencer. Sorry, my notes aren't as in perfect order as you are. Forgive me for interrupting. <laughs> we go to King's Landing, and Tyrion and Tyrion and Davos arrive in a fairly small skiff. And Davos said he's got his own business to attend to, and he takes off. Uh, potential best line nominee. You ready for it? Please tell me. Tyrion, feeling a little sorry for himself. Last time I was here, I killed my father with a crossbow. Davos, last time I was here, you killed my son with wildfire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Tyrion needed to hear that right then. Yeah, very, very good. I liked that. Um, and um, 
Then we cut to uh, where Braun is walking Jamie through the crypts of a basement, or what looks like to be the you know crypts or whatever of, of the Red Keep, under the guise that Jamie needs training because the Dothraki are so badass and Jamie's so bad at fighting now. And Jamie's confused, but he goes along with him anyway. And the point I want to raise here is the trust that Jamie has in Braun. Like Braun could just kill Jamie at any point, right? Yeah, he could sell him out in a heartbeat. Yeah, when he just Jamie just follows him. He's like, I really don't understand why I'm coming down here, but I'm coming with you. Um, so it just shows that uh, Jamie completely tr- trusts him. Uh, Braun kind of has the oop, Tyrion is here, and Tyrion and Jamie have a conversation. I felt here we can. I'll, I'll talk about the conversation. It's pretty quick. I feel like they could have let this breathe a little bit. Like this, this should have been a longer, more emotional scene than it was. And I, I I like what they did, but I agree with you. And I feel like it's indicative of a lot of this episode. That I'll, this episode feels like they were, they really are barreling to the end now. That there are so many scenes that they could have made longer. There's so many setups and plot points that they could have extended to make more sense. Instead, they smushed together two or three episodes to make to make a single one. And I hate that some of these really legitimately good emotional scenes feel like that they are just hammered in completely agree um well conversation they has is is Tyrion tries to get into why he killed tywin he was like he was gonna execute me for a crime i didn't commit he, he was gonna kill me because he hated me he didn't hate me because of who i was he hated me because i'm an imp because i'm a little guy because of how i was born and jamie kind of cuts him off and is like what do you want and Tyrion begins to explain the worst plan ever known to man <laughs> Uh, and Jamie's like, look, I'll, he seems to indicate that he'll try to help. He doesn't, he doesn't say, no, that's crazy. I'm not going to try to help. He, he just kind of says, okay. Anything more with this conversation? Well, one thing I still love about this conversation, and we've talked before about how my feelings for Tywin can be at times uh, unjustified, but I like how conflicted the two of them are about whether to appreciate their father's pride or be revolted by him as a man. Because... Tyrion offers legitimate praise to Jamie when he says, father would have been proud. And then immediately dials it back to say, what are the choices that I have? He was a monster. I had to kill him. With Jamie unwilling to even hear it, unwilling to even continue the conversation. So I like how much the scope of their father, the power of their father still hangs over them, and how much it still tortures them in, how, in terms of trying to decide how to feel about him as a person. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it It was not a bad scene. I just felt like they could have let it breathe. Yeah, and uh, then we cut to Davos. Mm-hmm. You got more? No, no, no. Let's go on to Davos because a, a fan meme has finally reached its conclusion in this next scene. Fan service 101 coming up. Davos is walking through the streets of King's Landing. Looks to be shopping, perusing. What is he looking for? Goes into a smith's shop. There's somebody forging a sword. Who is it? Gendry! Gendry's back, Spencer. How do you feel? I... It's one of those things of where they've waited so damn long to come back to this character. I was starting to doubt whether they ever were going to go back to him. And I love the cheer cheek of the show that one of the first lines Davos says was, Oh, I thought you might still be Rowan. Shout out to our Game of Thrones. <laughs> Shout out to the fan meme that had been going for like four years now. You, you did it, guys. You got on the show. You did it. Good job by you. Okay. Um, and then, you know, one thing, I, I, this is a subtle, like, little line here, but I just love it. 
you know, uh, Gendry's like, aren't you worried people are going to recognize you? He's like, ah, I've been here in years and hell, I don't even recognize me. Nothing fucks you harder than time. I, I wrote that Which, one down. I love that line. It was such a great line, line. Good line. Good line of the episode. I don't know. I don't know if I can put that in the episode notes like I've done with all the other line of the episodes if I choose it. But damn, it was a good one. Really liked it. And Davos can't even get out of his mouth what he's asking Gendry to do. And Gendry's like, yep, I'm good. Let's go. Which again, uh, and he walks out with his warhammer. Which again just shows what a rush that they are in. I mean, admittedly, Gendry's been sitting on the sidelines for long enough that he's really eager to get into the game. But it's also the show is just like, okay, Gendry's back in the picture. Moving on to the next plot point. Yeah. All right. We cut to uh, Davos and Gendry are back at the boat, and two, I mean Tweedledum and Tweedledee looking scrawny members of the City Watch, the Gold Cloaks, walk up to Davos and Gendry. And Gendry looks at him like, uh, I think I can maybe take you. But Davos goes up and he does the smuggler things. Oh, hey, no weapons, friends. How are you? Yeah. And he gives them uh, five, I think he offers five gold races. Is it still five gold dragons? And they say, oh, you old man, now it's 15 apiece, which I'll tell you, man. <laughs> I don't I don't work in the in the credit lending industry. I'm not a mob boss, but I questioned uh, the market research there on that purchase. But he pays it. There will be an entry in book nerd bitching on currency uses on the show that you will get to choose between if you so wish, sir. Because 15 gold dragons is the most ridiculous damn thing in this episode, and that says something. Whoo! All right. Whoo! All right. That's exciting. Yeah, I'm here for that. All right. Uh, and. Then they say, well, what's in your ship? And Davos is the boss because he's got a, a big old crate of fermented crab. He explains that it's some sort of aphrodisiac and he gives the guys a couple. I don't work blue Spencer, but he does indicate that, you know, they probably had other activities they should be engaging in after eating the fermented crab. A certain aphrodisiac effect, yes. And Tyrion shows up. Spencer, I'm I'm out of my mind here. What the hell happened to Tyrion? He didn't even think to hide. He wasn't looking up. Like he's created the worst plan. And first off, he's lost Dorne and Highgarden. He's yeah. created the worst plan that this show has ever seen. And now he thinks that he can just walk up on the gold cloaks when Davos specifically said, "I cannot fight if we get into trouble," without even trying to hide. Yeah, I'm tearing my hair out at this. It's an open cliff. He knew they were down there the moment he started walking down it. And he doesn't appear to notice them until he's like a hundred yards away. And are also you telling me that he marched and walked into King's Landing without even wearing a hood? Without even pulling a cloak over his face? I mean, the mere fact he's a dwarf is you know, flashing a lot of signs to who he might be. But notably, these guards go, hey, you've got a scar on your face. You must be the one we're looking for. A little piece of cloth or makeup would have protected him against that. Yeah, I mean, I don't know here because I, I, I did think that it's possible that Braun could have helped him get, you know, into, uh, how into he, the Red Keep. And how out. would he have gotten a message? How would he have sent yeah. a message to Braun that even inform him he was there? Well, he had to have because he Braun clearly coordinated the meeting with Jamie. So yeah. he had to have a line of communication with Braun. Yes, he had to. So he could have said, here's where we're going. Not that the show shows us what they did. And I'm offering the possibility that I don't think they reasonably could have gotten a message up to him. Yeah. All right. Well, I can't really argue that. I'm just trying to dig the show out of a hole here. But um, they see Tyrion. Um, he, they see Tyrion. The gold cloaks recognize him. They go up to him. Gendry uses the warhammer, kills them both swiftly. Uh, only thing I'd like to point out about this scene, which is otherwise kind of forgettable, is that 
I love the Beautiful Death posters that HBO commissions mm-hmm. uh, for every episode. Uh, I, I look forward to it every week the show's on. And th- I always because of that, I'm always thinking like, all right, well, who's going to die this episode? Because the Beautiful Death posters, if you haven't seen them, uh, in a very artful way depict a death that happened in that episode that week. And I thought we were going to get to one where there was no death. I thought this episode was going to be the one. And then these two gold cloaks died. And I was like, damn it. All right. <laughs> we got the death. And sure enough, the beautiful death poster was the death of the the, the gold cloaks here. Yeah. And I have two just little last things to mm-hmm. add up. Uh, one, I did love the line at the end of where Davos Andreessen says, this is Gendry. And Tyrion just says, he'll do. After he just smacked down the two yeah. gold cloaks. Uh, the two little bits. Yeah, that's pretty good. One, Gendry's Warhammer is a straight out of like World of Warcraft. How does he even hold that thing? It's probably got like 30 pounds of steel sitting at the top of it. Um, and point number two, was I the only one that after they just killed the two gold cloaks and they're loading up the boat that was chanting, get the gold, get the gold, someone get the gold from the corpses. Yeah. Yeah, the 15 gold dragons, yeah. I mean, I guess at this point, though, like, Davos is locked. Well, no, he's still with John. No, that doesn't make any sense. I was going to say that he's locked in with Danny, and Danny's got a lot of money, but no, he's not. I don't think he has a line of credit with her. All right, then we cut to Jamie and Cersei. Uh, and Jamie's walking in, and Kyburn leaves, and we've talked about this before, Spencer. I watched the show on subtitles. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you do, too. I do. Uh, so did you catch what Kyburn says to Cersei right as he's leaving at the start of this scene? I, I heard it, I noted it, and then I didn't write it down. Tell me what it was again. Yeah, it was, um, I can get you something for that. And she said, that won't be necessary, which this, that will come up later in this scene. Yes. So Jamie then immediately admits that, he, admits that he met with Tyrion. Cersei does not seem surprised. She doesn't even flinch. Um and he basically says, hey, look, you know, this is the situation. They want to help us with X, Y, Z. And uh, Cersei uh, is like, well, no, hold on. Let me back up. Because she, when, when Jamie admits that he met with Tyrion um, and she didn't seem surprised, um, there was this sort of weird tension where I think Jamie was starting to piece together that Cersei didn't have a problem with it. But... Jamie was able to sort of get out a very quick version of, all right, here's here's what kind of they want or what they're talking about. And Cersei then drops the line, are you going to punish him? With Jamie's like, how, Tyrion, how am I going to punish Tyrion? She goes, no, Bronn. And then the scene comes together. And the way Cersei's acting makes sense because, yeah, she knew about the meeting and she let the meeting happen. But she explains the reason for that is she started to believe that, you know, making some sort of, Packed or coming together with a dragon queen in some way could be a benefit. I don't know why she thinks that. Maybe she just lost her whole army and Danny has three dragons. I don't know. But anyway, she's come to the conclusion I probably can't just beat her outright. And then she again makes mention of Tywin, the ghost of Tywin, very present in this episode. Very much so. Says, we have to beat him. We have to be clever. We have to beat them the way father would have, right? Mm-hmm. Like we got to be clever. We can't just go out with, a, with an army because that's not going to work. That's been proven that's not going to work. And then Cersei starts rubbing her belly um, and, and saying, you know, we have to have a future, basically. Me and you have to survive or whatever because I got this baby in me. I, I didn't, first time I watched it, I didn't really know what the hell she, I thought, like, belly hurt? Like, I didn't know that <laughs> she was pregnant. Honestly, I didn't. Uh, and I was listening to, like, come to some of the podcast afterwards. I felt like a dope, but I, I didn't catch that right to begin with. Um, and then they hugged and Cersei drops the line on Jamie, don't ever betray me again. 
even in these legitimately heartfelt moments, even when they're planning a future together, Cersei has to make it 100% perfectly clear who is the queen bitch in the room. Yep. Cut back to Dragonstone. Davos and Gendry have showed up. They are walking toward the Dragonglass Cave, and Davos is prepping Gendry. He's, you know, you're Clovis. All right, you're Clovis. Uh, you know, he's got a lot on his mind. The King of the North. He goes, Don't bother him. He's telling him all this stuff. And Gendry's like, Yeah, yeah, I got it. I got it. And he walks up. Immediately, the T bombs start dropping. Like, he didn't hide anything. He just walks right up. Name's Gendry. <laughs> John was a little taken back, and he says, I'm Robert Baratheon's son and bastard son and john shoots davos a panicked look like what like <laughs> this is some shit here danny hears about this um but uh he, i thought gendry did a really good job here trying to connect with john he was a little forceful a little ham-handed but you have to think he's been waiting for this moment for a really long time and he connects with me says hey look our fathers fought together they were friends i don't know why we can't be and uh john says uh you know i saw your father once um <laughs> And he says, I saw your father once. Gendry says, I saw your father once. He came into my shop. And John says, well, you're a lot leaner than old King Bobby B. And Gendry, maybe ill-advised, says, you're a lot shorter than Eddard. <laughs> and you have this moment where you think John might get petty, but he didn't. He thought it was funny. And they move on. And Gendry basically says, hey, man, I want to join you. I know you're going north. I know you're doing the worst plan the universe has ever seen. I'd like to be a part of it. And... Yeah, John's not really pleased with this, but he's ultimately like, well, sure. I mean, if he can fight. And Davos vouches for him. He says he can handle himself, which, come on, Davos. He beat like two skinny gold cloaks that you just gave an aphrodisiac to that they didn't know he was had a, even had a weapon behind him. I, I, to me, that doesn't say that he's the best fighter. It's not much of a frame of reference. He's working from pretty limited data points here. But I do love that Davos gives us the final, the first bit of criticism of this suicidal plan that they're on with a wonderful line. Oh, yeah, you want to drop it? Uh, uh, where he says, yeah, nobody mind me. All I ever did was live to a ripe old age. <laughs> I love Davos. He's <laughs> a national treasure. And he, he's the first one just pointing out that maybe all the little suicidal whippersnappers could benefit from a bit of age wisdom. But fine, you know, you go do you. If you, if you survive, maybe you'll learn better. Yeah, so he tells Gentry, okay, we can use the men. You join. And then we cut to John is prepping to leave Dragonstone. Uh, we get a series of goodbyes here in succession. We start with Jorah and Tyrion. And Tyrion basically is like, hey, I missed you, Mormont. Like, you know, we had a we had a moment there. What was it, like season four or five? We, we, we had, a, had a thing that happened. You kidnapped me and we were sold as slaves. And then eventually we showed up with the queen that we now have. So you may have a shared history. And he pulls out a coin that I guess the slaver gave to him. Mm-hmm. To, to buy his freedom or to buy him back or something? What what I can't even remember what that was. Do you remember what that coin was about? I'm pretty sure it was the salary he was being paid for the entire term of his employment, which was his life as a slave. Ah, gotcha. Okay, and he gives the coin to Jorah and he says, bring it back. Our queen needs you. John walks out. He looks very official uh, and he's putting on some gloves. Um, actually, no, sorry. Back up. My apologies. Spencer, one point on the board for you. 3-3. Three, three. And it's Danny who comes out. And Danny talks to Jorah and, and she says, you know, we should be better at saying goodbyes now, which I thought was a, a pretty sweet line. And, you know, they, they just have a moment there together at this point. You know, it's it's a, obviously a platonic relationship, but it's one that that is real and it's based in affection on both sides, I think, now. And then John walks out and yet again, Danny, Danny gets a little distracted from Jorah. Uh, poor turns sir. right. Turn. <laughs> no, poor, poor Jorah. Sir she turns out. from Jorah. 
It's our friend zone. I like it. Uh, and then John walks up. Now he's looking very official. Now he's putting his gloves on. And he walks up to her. And they, they're saying their goodbyes. And I thought this was interesting, Spencer, because I'm looking at how they acted this. And John seems like he's just trying to get this over with. And Danny's like like flushed and like smiling. And we even have that moment where he says, well, look, if this doesn't work, which <laughs> why why could it? Um, you won't have to deal with the You won't have to deal with the king of the north anymore. And she says, oh, I've, I've grown right used to him, uh, which I thought was interesting. It was, like a, it was like a real first, like, outright flirting that you see Danny do with him. She's done some subtle stuff here and there, uh, especially knowing how we, what we know about how she interacts with other people, right? Like, she's gotten friendly with him pretty fast, but this was the first, like, boom, she is flirting. John completely brushes it off. He does not reciprocate. Um, which not, I thought was interesting. Is it not reciprocating or not picking up on it? Because as we know, Jon Snow knows nothing. I, I think he picked up on it. That was pretty That was pretty. It was pretty obvious. apparent. Even Jon Snow would pick up right. on that well, level of flirting. Yeah. Um, but here's all, here I want to stop, Spencer. I know we're, we're running up on it, so we don't have too much time left. But quickly, what do you think has made Danny like Jon? She really doesn't seem to tolerate schemers. She doesn't seem to really tolerate people who in any way obscure their motives, who are dedicated to a cause of just personal aggrandizement and are willing to manipulate the system to accomplish that. That's the opposite of what Danny's trying to support in the world she wants to create. In many ways, John is very much the kind of person that she wants to foster and prosper in, her, in, the, in the world that she imagines. He's very much a person who is legitimately earnest who wears his heart on his sleeves, who represents what he believes in first and foremost, and doesn't aim to manipulate you or trick you to get you to agree with him. He wants you to believe in him. He wants you to embrace his cause because it is true and it is good, and he wants you to see through his own actions that it is. He's just so real that it's hard not to be kind of, uh, you know, engaged by him. So I think she respects the fact that he is the genuine article in a way that she hasn't had a chance to confront much in her voyages. Yeah, I'll take that. Plus, he took a knife to his heart for his people. And cute. And cute. Let's, let's respect cute. Little short, though. Little short. L- little short, yeah. Uh, side note, in my Metro moment of the episode, I love Danny's costuming. I mean, her even her even her uh, casual outfits look like she's wearing dragon scales. That, that kind of red cloak sash of hers looks like knitted dragon scales, and it's just beautiful. Yeah, so, you know... Folks listening, me and Spencer go to um, the Con of Thrones. Uh, they've had two now. It's a it's the largest con for Game of Thrones and A Song of Ice and Fire fans. And uh, the one that uh, was that happened the first year. This was not this year. It was last year. The one in Nashville. There was a uh, there was actually a if I'm remembering correctly, a panel all, that the Game of Thrones costume designer was there. And my my wife went to it. I didn't, but she came back and started describing how in-depth they are with what they choose to like put the characters in and man it is granular like it is super impressive like the people who make these you know these costumes know the plot almost as well as the writers do like they they know all of the symbolism they're putting into these costumes i think it's incredible the clothes make the man it very much is very much even more so true on television and so the way you depict each character, what they wear, how they even just, even the balance and trim of their outfits can say so much about them. And the show does beautifully in terms of showing its characters, not just through what they say, but how they how they present themselves. Very good. Okay, let me cut to Old Town. Uh, Gilly 
is really leaning into reading at this point. Re Gilly loves to read. She's become quite the little book nerd. Uh, Gilly is like me in the World Almanac. She's just reciting trivia and boring the crap out of Sam in the process. She's loving it. And then she asks what a anomat means. Oh god. Ooh. This is an interesting then. This is an interesting way for the show to drop this. We figured that there would be some bit of world-changing trivia buried in these scrolls that Sam was having was being tasked to look through. I honestly wasn't expecting it to be the annulment. I was kind of thinking it was going to be, you know, some trick for defeating the others. This is honestly a little bit more interesting. Gilly with the all-time atomic truth bomb for the show. Number one with a bullet. Nobody's even close. Give her the gold medal. She explains that a maester had given an annulment to Prince Ragar, or Ragar, <laughs> and he had married a woman in a secret ceremony in Dorne. Wonder who that could be. Spencer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This, this is incredible. One. This is, particularly for book fans, this is everything we've ever imagined and debated and pondered. And it's just so incredibly important for the show because of the future tension it's going to create between Danny and John. Of where, with this, with John not just being a Targaryen bastard, with him actually being legitimately born, he has a superior claim nephew. to Danny to the throne of Westeros. Also nephew. Also a little incest. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, that detail was always there whether he was a bastard or, whether he was a bastard or not. With this, though, if this knowledge comes out, in many ways, it, well, not in many ways, it directly undercuts the legitimacy of Danny's claim to the throne. Because the Targaryens are yeah. strict male pa patron line. If there is a male available, yeah, we're gonna, he, will he will take above the woman. Yeah, we're going to do, yeah, and, and the, the Dance of Dragons proved that. Um, but what we're going to do is we're going to do a season eight speculation episode. Uh, coming up and we will get into you know how this is going to affect the characters i can give you a little spoiler of my thoughts here i Please. don't i i'm a, a hardly of the opinion that this is going to matter to john at all and it will be a passing concern of danny because john's going to go oh yeah i don't care about that i it's one of those things of where i expect more people will try to make something of it than I, than john does john does not want to rule westeros but many a person's going to try to manipulate john to rule through him is going to try to use John as a means of contesting Danny's legitimacy, and that's the one thing that may lead Danny to act. If where if she sees other yeah. people trying to use John or rallying around John for the purpose of contesting her rule, prideful Danny might find that a bit too much of a future threat, whether she thinks John will actually be actively involved in it or not. Yeah. All right. We'll get to that in the speculation episode. Then Sam gets fed up. He says he's quote tired of reading about the achievements of better men. Shout out, Lord Tarly. And uh, yeah. he steals some stuff and he leaves. Which is sad in so many ways because of how much we were hoping for, you know, Sam at the Citadel learning things and becoming a meister that he barely made it through, was this the fifth episode? He made it through five episodes of the show. Again, it shows yeah. how much in a hurry this show is, is that they can't let Sam be off scene for the incredible finale. So they have him abandon his dream with barely a whimper, and that's it. Yeah, and I kind of wondered when he said that if he had heard about his father, you know, because he could have heard about his dad and he remembers his dad saying that, and then that could have spurred it somehow. But we don't—we'd have no way of knowing. Yeah, I think I think they're saving that for him to for him to be in the same room as Danny when he finds out. Woo! That'll be good. All right, we cut to Winterfell. 
for the second dumbass plot they introduced in this episode. We touched on it a little bit in the previous Winterfell scene. Spencer, I'm going to talk through it. Spoiler alert, I have nothing to say about it. If you don't, that's totally fine, because this sucks. Okay. Let's let (laughs) it just sit there like a turd in the punch bowl. Go on. Arya is watching Littlefinger. Uh, She sees that he gets a scroll. She follows him to his room. When Littlefinger leaves, she breaks in. She looks around. She finds the scroll. She leaves the room. And then we see Littlefinger peeking at her around the corner. Yep. Well done. Well said. Okay. Then then we go. Moving on. I, I, I will Dude. offer. I will offer that this was. I had. This scene gave me the vaguest amount of hopes, just that they would do something unexpected, that they would return Littlefinger to some monicum of the competence that we knew about him in the prior seasons, and that he's actually engaging in an effort to trick them, and that maybe uh, Arya's headstrongness would actually lead her wrong. But it was still ham-handed as hell, and ultimately they don't even do that any of that, so it's useless. Moving on. <laughs> Yeah, that's why I had nothing to say about it. How yep. that plot plays out, that scene is... Anyway, we get to Eastwatch, where John has arrived. And he meets with my second, or my first or second favorite character, Spencer. I can't figure it out. It's Archmaester Ebros, but Tormund Giants Bane is a tour de force. Not just in this episode, but every, especially in these later seasons, everything he's in is fucking amazing. He's got some more great lines here. Um, Tormund, of course, immediately... Or recognizes how stupid this plan is. And he looks at Davos and says, isn't it your job to talk about a shit like this or some dumb shit like this? Something like that. Yeah. And Davos says he's been failing to that recently, which is also a good retort. Uh, and then he kind of, he starts to drink it in and he gets <laughs> the line out. Nominating for this one for best line of the episode. And you need to convince the one with the dragons or the one who fucks our brother. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and I, I love his follow-up from that, too, where he asks him, how many men did you bring? Not enough. The big woman? <laughs> he, he's still hoping for Brienne. If Brienne's going, you know, he's definitely down for this. <laughs> Look, the, the the big woman might be line of the episode, all right? It's it up might there. well be. Because um, John, Kit Harrington does a good job of sort of laughing and thinking that's endearing. Like, the, the look he shoots him back, I thought, was really good. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, Tormund says, you know, of course he'll help him. Uh, always. Um always repping Team King John. But he says that they aren't the only ones talking about going north of the wall. He takes them down to the cells. Uh, We can kind of go quickly through this. I think they're just trying to get the characters to the point to start the next episode. And basically what happens is Tormund takes John and company down to the cells where the Brotherhood is locked up. The Brotherhood had come up there, uh, presumably based on what the hound had seen in the flames uh, mm-hmm. back in that uh, that farmer's uh, house, the farmer that had died. And everyone starts to recognize each other. And then the others start to figure out they all hate each other. And Beric tries this rallying speech, which I wish they would have let him do, but they went for comedy here. And the hound cuts him off. They're too, and much, bluntly in ask, They're too much in a hurry yeah, to laugh at rallying speeches. I thought it would have been good. I mean, Beric is the guy to deliver that. I mean, he clearly has lived and died for this purpose many, many times. But anyway... Hound cuts him off and they bluntly ask, uh, you know, are we going with you or not? Um, they are, clearly. And the episode ends with, tell me if I got everybody, okay? Yep. John. Yep. Jorah. Yep. Tormund. Yep. The Hound. Yep. Beric. Yep. Thormoth. Thoros. Yep. Gendry. Yep. Some red shirts. Yep. You got, you got, you got seven main characters and four guys dragging a canoe. Yeah. 
Um, all right, Spencer, when you first watched this episode, what was your what would you have put the uh, percentage odds that those four red shirts lived? Uh, on the, on, <laughs> is negative an option? Can we go into imaginary numbers there? Sure. Yeah, it was that for me. I was looking at those guys. I remember like looking, uh, talking to the person I was watching the episode with and being like, you see the four people? <laughs> they put them there so that they can die. And so it's not as surprising that some of the other people don't die. Yeah. And spoiler it's, alert. That's this is happens. like from Galaxy Quest. They are there to prove the scene is dramatic. Yeah. Uh, well, All right. Uh, and here's a, I'm going to throw, throw a question back at you, sir. You quizzed me at the beginning of this episode. I've got one for you now. Woo. That there are seven of these individuals, and seven is an important number in Westeros, because there are seven aspects of the faith of the seven. Each of these characters appears to represent a different aspect of the faith of the seven, which I think is a very interesting poetic framing for their, their suicidal mission north of the Wall. Are you willing to tell me your thoughts about which of these characters you think represents each of the aspects? And I have the aspects written down so I can tell them, tell them to you. All right, you tell them to me, I'll try. But I'm going to tell you right now, um, of the lore of the books, uh, the the religions interest me the least. So I'm not not real good with it, but I'll give it a try. I, I've got I've got my own suggestions here too. We can do it that way. The the aspects are the stranger, the crone, the maiden, the smith, the warrior, the mother, and the father. Well, the smith is the easiest. Yeah, that that one's a gimme. That one you got Gendry clearly um, filling the role. Uh, the warrior is that the Hound? Or is that Tormund? I was betting Tormund with that one because I think the Hound has a book reference that kind of says who he is. Uh, the mother, I'm gonna go Thoros. Very good, very good. Because that's a that's a great book line there. Are you my mother, Thoros? Yeah, he's yeah. literally been giving life back into the world. Who, the father. Father's a tough one. Father's kind of just a leftover one in my view. I mean, is it, I guess it could be Barrick or John. It could be it could, father. Literally, could be every could it could be anybody you don't think fits into a better role. I think John is probably the maiden because everybody's commented how pretty he is. Of where even um, Craster said you're prettier than my daughters. Well, actually, even Thorman said you're prettier than my daughters. Everybody has said John is prettier than various girls in the show, so he's probably the maiden. Okay, what do we got left? Uh, you've got left uh, the crone, the father, and the stranger. Ooh. I don't know. What do you think? Well, Fire away. I mean, the, the stranger is associated with death. So if you want to, you could tie him to uh, Barrack or John. But I'm tying him to the hound because the hound is so associated with death, he named his freaking horse the stranger. So I'm going with that one. Uh, Barrick, given his love for prophecy, given the degree to which he brings people together, given how much he's been associated with aged multi-life wisdom, is probably the crone. And then that just kind of leaves the father for um, Jorah, which given the role that he adopts with John in the next episode, is providing a certain degree of fatherly figure, a certain degree of guidance as well, a certain old warrior respectability to him, I think could fit well enough. All right. Well... That was that. Yeah, that's good, Spencer. I had, I had seen that. Thanks for reminding me that people had drone. I mean, I, I I presume you would have done that on your own, but I did see it um, from other folks posted here and there. And I think that's a if the show meant to do that, 
And I think they probably did. That's that's sneaky good. I mean, I, I think in some ways they coincidentally just worked out it well because I think the show's objective here was to form an A team to go forth to do crazy, stupid missions north of the wall. And so they just picked their seven most badassery characters that they could find to throw together into hell. The fact that it turned out to be seven of them, I think, was probably more coincidence than not. But from a a poetic mythology and faith perspective, I think it worked out well. Yeah, agreed. Okay, episode over, Spencer. Uh, thoughts on the episode? There were some good scenes, but they weren't great scenes. And they were scenes that often felt very rushed. It often felt like the show has seen the end and is just desperate to barrel towards it. And the scenes in those two categories that we talked about were already hard to bear and are even harder now knowing that they ended up going even less than nowhere. So I think this scene, sadly, is very indicative of how the back half of this season was a disappointment. I think this episode was a good example of how the back half of this season proved to be a disappointment. Which is a shame, because the climax it was building to over the course of the first four episodes was pretty damn impressive. I agree. I give it a, a C. Yeah, it, it, It's not bad. Nothing in this, Very few of the episodes of this show are bad, even when they have bad scenes. But it's Got one coming up. Got one standards. coming up. Yeah, I give it a C. Okay, we're on we're on uh, uh, agreement there. So if you've listened to episodes of this podcast before, you know that the next segment is mine and mine alone. I choose best I choose best line of the episode, and the way we do this is we go back through some of the great lines. Uh, Spencer and I bat them about, and then I award one. Uh, I'll get going here with uh, listen to me, cunt. Till I get what I want, a dragon doesn't get to kill you. You don't get to kill you. Only I get to kill you. <laughs> A great line from Bronn very much summarizes his position on this. Is that you promised me a castle, you son of a bitch. You ain't dying to avoid repaying me. Uh, so yeah, I, I definitely approve of that one. Let's see here. Let's go with... I'm gonna. This is a long one, but I'm going to recite it just because it's a wonderful scene read out by Varys. Of where first Tyrion says, I'm her hand, not her head. I can't make decisions for her. To which Varys responds... That's what I used to tell myself about her father. I found the traitors, but I wasn't the one burning them alive. I was only a purveyor of information. It's what I told myself when I watched them beg for mercy. I'm not the one doing it. When the pitch of their screams rose higher, I'm not the one doing it. When their hair caught fire and the smell of their burning flesh filled the throne room, I'm not the one doing it. I like that. And if you, if you are correct, and I think you are, that this is Varys honestly opening up emotionally to Tyrion about his own past sins. It's a very powerful line and a very powerful scene. Okay, another one from Braun here. Uh, you're fucked. Don't you mean we're fucked? No, I do not. Dragons are where our partnership ends. Another good line, and very much in keeping with Braun's character, particularly with how he abandoned Tyrion when he was about to fight the mountain. Uh, same scene for me, Varys and, uh, Varys and Tyrion. Uh, who's that for? Jon Snow. Did you read it? It's a sealed scroll for the King of the North. What's it say? Nothing good. Yeah, that's pretty good. Next uh, nominee I'm going to put uh, for me uh, for recreating um, a remix of the Reigns of Castamere song. So I'm going to give uh, myself a nomination for this. You are playing so. fast and loose with the rules, sir. Our recording does not encapsulate quotes from the episode. Ah, mm. uh, don't think you heard the terms of this segment. I and I alone choose. Okay, you. Fine, moving on. Um, wasn't sure I'd find you. Thought you might still be rowing. Yeah, you got to put that up there. Um, 
How about, he's a good lad. I feel like that's a big one. Sam got a compliment. Okay, fine. Uh, I'm going to take nothing fucks you harder than time because no greater truism has ever been said on the show. Uh, I'm going to end with, uh, and you need to convince the one with the dragons or the one who fucks her brother. You're going to take that over the, over the, over the big woman. I was thinking you were going to take big woman. I was planning. I, I was going to save that one. So I will offer big woman. Okay. That is good. Um, now for winner, best line of the episode, season seven, episode five, with respect, your grace. I don't need your permission. I am a king. Jon Snow, everybody. Congratulations, Jon Snow. That was a baller move. I will give that credit. Okay, great. Next segment, we move on to book nerd bitching. Spencer, take it away. I'm here for you. And uh, as per usual, I've got a few options. You kind of covered one when you had me talk about Jenny Oldstones and the Ghost of High Heart, so we'll leave that one behind. But even as it stands, I have one, two, three, four, five options for you. So you get to take the three favorites and leave two for the cutting room floor for the time being. Ooh, Are you ready? All right. Yeah, fire away. First one. Uh, why drowning is a thing when you are in armor. Because that one needs to be addressed. Um, option number two. Uh, how dragons determine their riders and whether it is genetic or whether other principles are at play. Option number three. Similarities between scenes. Danny burning the two Tarleys versus the Mad King burning the two Starks. Option number four. Why the show really needs to take a lesson in economics or how the show is incredibly inconsistent in how it portrays currency. And option number five. And this one's just a quick one. Uh, Jorah and Thoros, where they met before. And I think, honestly, you pointed out to me before that that one's kind of covered in the next episode. So maybe we should save that one for next week. Right, so I'm going to go with the armor, uh, the Mad Queen, because I, as you know, I monitor Danny's Mad Queen bars, and um, the economics lesson from Professor Spencer. Fire <laughs> that's away. What, that's what I'm here for. Okay, as we discussed in probably more detail than we needed to, but we both just felt very passionately about it, drowning in armor is a thing. It happens. If you're wearing, try jumping in a pool with 60 pounds of extra gear on your back. Just holding a pair of weights and tell me how well you can move or stay buoyant. I'm pretty sure I could do it. You know, if you want to try this next week, I can go, I'm going to come up and watch this happen. With a lifeguard present, could, of yeah, course, just, when we inevitably pull the drowned rat you know, that is you out of the pool. I've just got that country strength, Spencer. It's just sort of subtle. But anyway, I think I could do it, but most people know I'm with you. Go ahead. So, so if we have, a, if we have the, the pet pig drowning in the water, we can count on you to pull it out. But for right now... Yeah. The book has made a the books have made a great deal of importance out of the fact that the most skilled warriors known to man can drown if they are in full plate and fall into a body of water. It happens. It's recurring on the show actually uh, on the books actually. Back during the Battle of Blackwater, we remember that Sir Podrick Payne, the tripod if you will, uh, attacked and killed Sir, Sir Mandon Moore from behind in the show driving a spear through the back of his head. As Mandon Moore Viewed by Jamie as the second most deadly member of Robert Baratheon's Night's Watch, uh, Robert Baratheon's Kingsguard, uh, is about to uh, um, kill Tyrion Lannister. He's already sliced him once across the face and is going in for the coup de grace. In the books, it's quite different. For one, Podrick Payne is far younger. Um, for another, rather than 
jam a, jam a spear through the back of his head, which would be hard with him wearing full plate armor anyway, he instead gives him a slight push. The two of them and the books have actually actually fighting aboard um, a kind of bridge of burned ships of the remainings of Stannis' fleet after Tyrion has inflicted his wildfire attack upon them. As they're standing on this, Mandon Moore goes over and slices Tyrion once across the face and is going in to kill him. When little Podrick Payne runs up and just gives him a shove, Tyrion comments that he sees him briefly flail in the water and then disappear without a bubble never to be seen again. One of the most impressive deadly men in the world dies because he's wearing full plate armor and he falls into relatively shallow conditions there on the shore. This is not the only time this has happened either. In the books we've talked about before, there are far more uncles of uh, Theon and, uh, what's her name on the in the show, Yara, of the Greyjoy family, than there are in the show. In the show, we've just got Euron. In the books, we also have the wonderfully hilarious Victarion, who is essentially Conan Barbarian who got lost and wandered into the books. As part of his whole barbarian edge, he, despite being a primarily nautical warrior, likes to fight in full armor, which gives him a hell of a combat advantage when he's fighting mostly unarmored sailors. When he's doing the Battle of the Shield Islands, when Euron is doing his great plan to slowly take over all of Westeros, they, uh, Victorian is taking a ship and is just carving through the unarmored and scarcely armed sailors without any degree of effort. When he's confronted by the Lord of the Vessels, Sir Talbert Serre, who actually gives him a heck of a duel, who fights him well, fights him, who fought, who fought him, in Victorian's words, almost like an ironborn. In the end, rather than defeat him straight up in combat, Victorian just kind of grabs him by the shoulder and just heaves him off the boat, where he promptly falls into the water and, wearing full plate, immediately drowns. Victorian talks about that the reason he has such an advantage is that he's confident enough in his abilities and in his stability that he can fight in armor without fear of falling in the water. Whereas most sailors, pretty much all sailors, know actively that you don't do that. That it's actively suicidal if any condition outside your control occurs and you fall in because you will drown. Historically in our own world, at battles, at, fre at frequent amphibious assaults we engaged in throughout history, including famously during World War II and at D-Day, a significant portion of the soldiers drowned before they ever reached the beach because they got out into deep of water and couldn't barely move underwater in their kit. Even if you're scuba diving, if you're wearing a large amount of gear, you're impressed with how slow and cumbersome your movements are and how much you rely on the fact that you can inflate your vest when you need to to get to the surface. So I offer that the show is just playing actively fast and loose in physics in terms of directly defying the book's consistent theme that no matter how badass you are or how badass the person dragging you is, if you fall into water while wearing full armor, odds are you're not going to wander out onto the shore alive. So, how do I, do I get your this, vote on this Yeah, th This one is like a debt ceiling vote. It's procedural in nature. Uh, this was always going to pass with the super majorities in both chambers. Uh, good work, Spencer. Completely agree. Uh, this bill passes going to the president's desk. Doesn't matter what he does with it. It's passing. Okay. Wh Next! What was the second one that you picked? I'm trying to remember. Uh, was it... Mad Queen! Uh, Mad Queen. Uh, this one's just a quick one, and it just addresses a pretty well done view, uh, job on the show's part in terms of framing two scenes in time. We've talked frequently this season about how the show's been actively working to show history is cyclical, that events that have happened in the past very much can repeat in the present, that 
momentous events that occurred historically can play out again in our own lives. One of these is directly framed here, and it is very much playing in the back of both Tyrion and Varys' minds throughout this episode, of when Danny chooses to burn a father and son alive there before the assembled host of Westeros. She is very much hearkening back to the decision her father did that ended up shattering the Seven Kingdoms. That the event that famously sparked the war, uh, the Civil Roberts Rebellion that brought down the Targaryen dynasty was the quote-unquote kidnapping of Lyanna Stark. But the event that actually turned it into a shooting war was what happened to, her, to Lyanna Stark's family. That Brandon Stark, her hothead brother, who Ned Stark famously said very much had the wolf's blood, which seems to occur in each Stark generation, decided the best course of action in terms of getting his sister back was to assemble together a collection of other young lords from the Vale, the North, and the Riverlands, march to King's Landing, and then kind of just strut outside the gates of King's Landing and encourage um, uh, Rhaegar Targaryen to come out and die. Not necessarily the most logical move on his part. Probably wouldn't suggest your best way of confronting a king, confronting a, the prince of the realm is to, you know, suggest that you're there to kill him. But Not that's, a good look. That, that, that's the strategy he decided to go with. Uh, the Mad King promptly threw him and all of his friends in prison, and demanded that each of their that their, each of their fathers come to claim them and answer for their crimes. And so lords from Karout, the Vale, the Riverlands, the North, came to King's Landing, including the famous Rickard Star Rickard Stark, Ned Stark's father, the father of Lyanna and Brandon, who was a famous figure, well known to the point that even members of the Kingsguard debated their degree of being able to take him in a fight. Rickard Stark went to King's Landing expecting that he could that he, that he could uh, submit to a trial of arms to rescue his son, fully expecting to fight Jamie Lannister and fully expecting to win, which tells you a lot about what that man was capable of. However, in a famous scene there in the throne room before the Mad King, as he demanded a trial by combat, the Mad King revealed to him that he'd already executed all of, uh, all of uh, Brandon Stark's friends. He'd already executed all of Brandon Stark's friends' families. And that the champion of House Targaryen was no soldier. It was fire. Cheat code. That's a cheat code. Yeah, it seems like an unfair I'm calling advantage. Sh- calling really shenanigans on that. Yeah, I, I think... Calling shenanigans, Mad King. Not okay. Yeah, as an attorney, I would have asked to see the contract for that trial by combat before I actually agreed to it. I feel like Rickard Stark wasn't getting proper legal advice before he submitted to these proceedings. But that's a separate issue we can debate at a different time. Brandon was brought, into the, was brought into the throne room as he saw his father being trussed up in his armor and slowly being cooked alive by the wildfire that was boiling beneath his feet as it slowly worked its way up his body. And Brandon Stark was invited to rescue his father. All he had to do was reach out and grab a sword, a sword that was placed just beyond his grip as a, as a rope cord was tied around his neck that grew tighter with each effort he made to strain against it. And so... As all the various lords of Westeros, as all the various la- lords and ladies of the royal throne of the royal of the royal city, sat there in abject horror, watching, Rickard Stark burned alive in his armor as his son Brandon strangled himself to try to rescue him. The parallels between this scene are on the nose and purposeful. They are very much trying to put in our minds and the minds of our characters that Danny is going down a direct path that her father did. He is taking noble fathers, he is taking noble sons, 
and she is executing them for her purposes. She claims justification. She claims necessity. She claims that they are in no position to play with niceties about this. But one could believe the Mad King was probably justifying it much the same to his advisors when he said that traitors cannot be afforded any other relief but this. That these men came to assassinate my son. These men are threats to the realm. The realm itself needs to know what we are capable of. And so the realm will bend the knee. So I, f I compliment the show in terms of hearkening back to this scene. I compliment the show for the power of the scene depicted in terms of the death of Tarlis. And I think it is very keeping with the themes the show has done throughout this season and showing that events are cyclical and how we judge ourselves in present events can be very much how events occurred in the past. Yeah, so I don't think that the men had come there to... like. For our, uh, first off, I'm going to say I have... A, some issues with comparing the both of these, right? Please. Um, they, Danny had done nothing like kidnap a Tarly and, and take them away. Mm -hmm. And the Tarleys still had, had turned against her. This was, this is active war. This isn't like, uh, you know, Danny was just acting out or her, her, one of her family members were acting out and then she punished somebody cruelly for acting for asking for justice. Instead, this was a family where, during war that had turned against her and then she even gave them a chance to bend the knee and they refused to do so. I do think her, her, her punishment was too harsh. I think comparing it to the Mad Queen or Mad King burning the Starks, uh, burning one and strangling another and killing a whole host of other uh, Stark loyalists is, is a teeny bit of a stretch i'll tell you it squeaks by in the house it fails in the senate this goes back to committee for rewritten i would offer that from randall tarley's perspective she's committed to even greater sin than simply kidnapping a family member she's invaded westeros with a foreign horde the reason that he chose to turn against her side the reason he chose to turn against his liege lord was not any degree of family offense it was an offense as a citizen of westeros that she from his perspective engaged in the worst of all sins and that she has brought a horde of conquering raping savages to their shores and let them free to do as they wished so i'm not talking about i'm not talking about randall tarley's perspective i'm talking about daenerys's perspective because what we're comparing is daenerys's actions with her father's actions and i'm saying that her perspective is very very different than the perspective the mad king had when he you know, hauled off and did that horrible uh, thing which by the way a uh, little bit of a trivia here that scene was included in the first uh the first uh pilot of Game of Thrones, which had to be, my understanding, had to be rewritten and reshot, and so they, they, they shot that out. But we almost got that scene in the very first episode. I accept your verdict, though I'd offer the importance and comparison of the scene is not Danny's perspective, it's other people's perspective of her. And the thoughts that are occurring in their, in their minds are very much comparing her actions to those of her father before. But I accept your verdict. Spencer, Spencer, I have a question for you. When you're in front of a judge and he gives a ruling, do you go, yeah, okay, great, but I got to get the last word here. Uh, yeah, all the damn time it gets me in trouble. Um, <laughs> all right, cool. All right, we got the one more, and then we're going to go to, uh, we're going to end the episode. We've got money, economics lesson. Take it away. Okay, money and economics lesson. Um, I just want to remind the world that gold dragon, the world and the writers for that matter, that gold dragons are not the only currency of Westeros. That gold dragons... Uh, well, let's frame this scene again. The scene I'm primarily objecting to here is the scene of when Davos is buying off the gold cloaks. Of where he initially suggests that it's a five gold dragon cost to pay off two guards to turn the other way so that he can engage in smuggling operations. And then they 
throw back at him that no, it's 15 apiece. So 30 gold dragons. I want to remind everybody that gold dragons are not the only coin. That we often see on the show that gold dragons are the only ones referenced because we're primarily going from the perspectives of the nobility. The nobility deals in hard coinage. They deal in the most valuable of coinage because they are doing large-scale sweeping events that actually require that kind of financial investment. Most of the people of Westeros will never in their lives see a gold dragon. Most of the members of the, of the, uh, of the uh, gold cloaks, unless they're incredibly corrupt, will never see a gold dragon. The majority of the coins that they deal in are pennies. They're stars. They're stags. Barely even sta- aren't, silver stags. Aren't there aren't there coppers? Uh, copper pennies, and then there's other coins like groats, half groats, stars, going up to silver stags and silver moons, with gold dragons being the very top coin at the very top of this. To give you a perspective on how much a gold dragon is, it's not always easy because we only have certain events over the course of the se- of, of the course of the series that occur at different moments in time. But focusing on the books, we have one event of uh, when Brienne is going no- is wandering through the Riverlands looking for the Stark girls, and she and a couple other people comment that a single gold dragon is a good price to buy a high quality horse. A high quality horse would be more valuable to someone at that time period than a car, because a horse you could do any- would be not only a means of getting about, it would be the key aspect of your business. So the idea of five gold dragons is just his starting bid being a reasonable price for a smuggler to smuggle goods on a single trip into King's Landing is... On a skiff, by the way. On a teeny little skiff. A teeny skiff loaded with crab is getting pretty damn ludicrous. For them to throw back in his face 30 gold dragons, that's more money than they'll ever see far and away in several careers. For them, just to very casually mention that, I get that they're corrupt. I get that inflation has probably happened over the course of the war, but the numbers are ridiculous. And the show itself has represented that those numbers are ridiculous just a couple seasons back of when Tywin and Varys were debating the price necessary to set on the hound who'd gone rogue to encourage a common soldier to be actively suicidal and trying to go kill him was 100 stags. That's half a gold crown. The price to bring the friggin' hound in was one-tenth the price that it takes in Davos's youth to bribe a guard. One-sixtieth of the price it takes now to just get a guard to turn the other way? I don't buy that. It's not reasonable for either book or show. And I think it just reflects that the show isn't really caring to invest in continuity with respect to details like this. They don't expect us to check. They don't expect us to give it even more than a second thought. That 30 seems like a good round number, and they know we're aware of what gold dragons are. And so nobody asks any questions. This is why I was freaking out of when they just left the money on the beach, because that kind of money could, is a substantial investment that they're just leaving sitting in the sand. And that particularly Davos, who came up from Flea's Bottom, who until relatively later in his life may never have even dealt in dragons or even had a concept of them, to leave that kind of money just sitting behind just strikes me as remarkably unrealistic your thoughts sir well the good sir from florida has convinced the banking committee to pass his bill out of committee it goes to the floor of the house passes easily goes to the floor of the senate passes it's going to the president's desk good work spencer this was i like this book nerd bitching because it's 
I like the book nerd bitching, bitching that you point out, and you know other podcasts do. They don't term it that because it's trademarked. Obviously, Mangum talks. Mm-hmm. Um, I like the things that the small things that I feel like when Gurm is watching this, he's just cringing. Oh yeah. And I feel like this is one of those that when he saw that, he was just like, oh, come on. I mean, you, you could have just asked me. And, and the show gives you false expectations about it because you'll see noble lords of Westeros throw out like 1,000 crown figures or 10,000 10, gold dragon figures. But that shouldn't in any way color your picture for how most of the people of Westeros live. That This is a society of where, even more so than today, all of the wealth is concentrated in a very limited collection of people. That they can throw around numbers like that because they have all the gold. Most of the rest of the people of Westeros are never going to see that. And for them to just so casually deal in those figures is ludicrous, particularly for a, a smuggler in a tiny skiff that's trying to go about his business. If he's having to pay that amount of money every time he goes, he's already in bankruptcy before he's even started his first trip. Yeah. Okay. Good work, Spencer. I liked it. Two out of three. Uh, you're, you're ahead of the ball game, And it looks like at the scoreboard, we're tied 3-3 this episode. So nice draw. Good, sir. You know, you kind of got yourself a bit of an advantage when you threw trivia at me in the first round. I was three down before we even got started. Yeah, well, God, you know, when you don't know the books as well as the person you're doing the podcast with, <laughs> sometimes a little quick Googling gives you an advantage. Yeah, I'm embarrassed. Um, I should have known that stuff, but you threw me completely off guard with that. But still, a fun way to start. Kept things even up until the bitter end. Absolutely. Good job by me. Good job by you. Thanks for the episode, Spencer. Thanks for everybody listening. Uh, you can check us out at mangumtalks.com. Now you can get our podcast at uh, SoundCloud, iTunes, or Spotify. And also you can check out our Mangum Reads podcast. Spencer, anything you want to say to the people? Always a pleasure, guys. Looking forward to next week. Yeah, me too. See you guys.